VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, January the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it looks like a bit of nasty, snowy, stormy weather in the offing for this part of the province. That's after an icy week in many parts of the province, which saw schools closed. Now, it wasn't exactly sloppy this morning on my drive-in. There was a bit of water on the road, but in front of me is one of those smaller cube vans. The ones that you see the plumbers, electricians, and other tradespeople using. And we weren't going very fast, certainly less than 90 kilometers an hour. And because of the ruts and the bitter water that collected in them, this person in front of me had a pretty serious uh, experience with hydroplaning. The van whipped around and very abruptly got back in action, but just with that little bit of water and going maybe 85 kilometers an hour, there was the hydroplane. It certainly looked like it anyway. And then you add into it the story that we see way too often. Somebody driving on the Outring Road yesterday gets clocked at and pulled over after going 181 kilometers an hour. You know, you really do wonder what punishment should be for that type of speed. It infuriates me because I might be on the road with this lunatic. My children, my wife, my family, my brothers and sisters, my friends might be out there with this guy because nothing can be done safely at 181 kilometers an hour. You could do your shoulder check and check your mirrors and look around to just try to proceed with a lane change. And before you know it, this bat out of hell is right on top of you. So 181 kilometers an hour is simply completely unacceptable. Something from Dave. Thanks a lot, Dave. Okay. Um... A couple of this dates in history, and this is kind of curious and coincidental. So it was today in 1903 that the French newspaper Loto announced a new five-stage long-distance bicycle race called the Tour de France. So that was this date in 1903. It was this date in 2013 that one of the legends of the cycling sport, Lance Armstrong, one of the most heralded cyclists of his day, the seven-time champion of the Tour de France admitted in 2013 on this date that he did indeed dope for all of his seven victories. So, what was a guy who took his popularity and fame way beyond cycling, of course, the shame that came with this admittance, even though it was widely understood and people thought that he had been doping, but just get a load of what they're asking out of these athletes. It's a superhuman ask to participate in the Tour de France. If you've ever watched it, it's not like you're riding down the flats of Elizabeth Avenue for the distance. The mountain climbs and the day after day of unbelievable distances they have been asked to travel, get a load of it. So it's about three weeks in July. There's 20 day-long stages. They typically comprise 20 professional teams, nine cyclists per, and they travel over 3,600 kilometers in those 20 stages. 3,600 kilometers. So it's mostly in France, of course. They nip into Belgium, Italy, Germany, Spain, and since 1975 have finished in Paris, coming down the Champs-Élysées. But 3,600 kilometers, and you wonder why some of them were tempted to be doping. It's just madness. All right, I want to say congratulations, good luck, to the crowd out in Cornerbrook who have opened up a new martial arts studio. So it's called Anchor Combat Academy. They're offering classes in boxing, kickboxing, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Open to uh, ages from students are seven years of age and up, all levels of ability and athleticism. 
So they started with 15. Now they're over 70. They thought maybe they'd get 40 people to sign up over the course of their first year. They got 40 the first day. So Ben Cox is quoted in the news story. He's the co-owner of Anchor Combat Academy. They say that Cornerbrook was thirsty for this type of offering. And, of course, it's really absolutely popular. You know, not only on top of the karate and kung fu and jiu-jitsu and the popularity of mixed martial arts. So good on them for bringing that opportunity to the folks in Cornerbrook and surrounding area. Good luck with it. Okay, an announcement yesterday that I think is a little bit bigger than it got credit for or the way it was covered. And this is the fact that there's a partnership between Stella Circle, Choices for Youth, and the provincial government to try to get more and more young people into the workforce. More and more young people around income support. So what kept many of them from working and actually signing up to pay their taxes on their employment as opposed to cash on the barrel head was that they'd have a clawback in their income support if they were working a few hours a week. So they're going to put forward a new earnings exemption formula. There's going to be the opportunity, of course, because of that, to keep more of their earnings. Bonuses if they've been employed continuously over the course of 6, 12, 18 months. Of course, at that point, you've built your work experience. You can start moving up the ladder a little bit. And here's where I think this becomes a bit more important than the way it was simply covered. Not only do we need to see young people on, youth, on, on income support, pardon me, have the appetite and the want to get into the workforce, because I think if we look at the numbers over the years, now there's certainly an opportunity to look at social assistance and how it works and who the recipients are, and it absolutely is part of the country. The social safety net is critically important. But there's a certain cyclical nature of income support. When you look at some of the numbers over the years, those who are living in families with mom and dad or their caregivers on income support are more likely to end up in that life predicament or that circumstance than others who were not growing up in a household like that. So, in an effort to stem the tide, break the cycle, and hopefully this will be extremely effective, and hopefully there's going to be the kind of support and tutelage and training so that they can get in the workforce. It's better for all of us, and most importantly, it's better for those youth to get in, to get their feet wet, to start moving up the chain, get some life experience, some work experience, earn more money, and the self-pride and Whatever else goes with it, you can characterize it as you see fit, but I think that's an important program, and I'm glad that they brought that forward. And on that front, we talk about earnings. There's always going to be a conversation about the proper amount to pay for the type of work you do. Newfoundland and Labrador has the second lowest median income in the country, ahead of only Prince Edward Island. So the average median income across Atlantic Canada for 2019, that's the most recent numbers being used, is $32,175. It's 16.8% lower than the median income in Central and Western Canada, which stands at 37583 In this province, the number is at $32,000 even. There's all kinds of issues regarding the labor market, uh, different contributing factors about proximity to economies of scale and what have you, but... You know, when we talk about who should be paying what type of tax inside our progressive tax system, this kind of paints a picture where we're not really sure, I'm not really sure where we go to deal with more and more tax on the individual level. Always a conversation to be had about those who use the offshore loopholes and tax havens and how we tax and approach corporate activities, but people in the province on the average median income, $32,000. That was 2019 numbers. Let's keep going. And on that front, you know, paying for the necessities of life. Price of gas, boom, way up. 7.6 cents per liter overnight. Diesel, a slight increase, just over 2 cents. A small increase in propane. Stove oil up 5 and a quarter. 
Furnace oil has dropped less than a cent right across the province, but of course last Thursday went up a whopping big 20 cents. So add this in to the fact that we are going to be able to engage with the Public Utilities Board to learn more about their transparency and justification for how they evaluate the price of fuels. And gone are the days where we got used to Wednesday we'd get a bit of a heads up from those in the industry, and then Thursday the adjustment would be made. But now with the interruption formula being the go-to mechanism by the look of it, Still lots of questions looming about how they arrive at those numbers. And most importantly, I think, is to try to compare the formula used at our regulator versus the formula used in other parts of Atlantic Canada and across the country. Because far too often, we have not been in lockstep. Yes, I get there's some geographical concerns and considerations. Yes, I understand the importation of the vast majority of fuels, given the fact that combo chance has gone by the wayside. But anyway, there you go. You want to take it on? Let's do it. Curiously, I think maybe Tim Powers went sitting in for me on Monday or Tuesday talking about what we're seeing in the province of Ontario with moving more and more surgeries like hip and knee replacement into the private sector, the for-profit clinics, which the Premier likes to refer to as independent. Okay. So I, I had a little look across some of uh, the major newspapers in other provinces across the country, and they're starting to talk about it too. You know, using Ontario as an example, but of course, when we see the backlogs and wait times and the struggles with recruiting and retaining healthcare workers, doctors in particular on this front, I think it becomes a nationwide conversation. Just so we have an inkling about where we're going, why certain provinces are doing one thing or another, and what it really means. So NAEP is speaking out on this. And they talk about, I think, some of the obvious ones. Is, you know, investing in private health care, it's not like we don't do it already. I mean, just think about it. I've seen someone call out Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, his criticism of what uh, Doug Ford is doing. And someone pointed out, well, the NDP were quick to push $7 billion worth of dental care, which is, by and large, all offered inside a private setting. And there are lots of private examples of health care in the country. What I think becomes the immediate concern is if every province, take it at face value, is talking about their struggles to hire enough doctors in particular. And we know that it's not just doctors that are the linchpin of, of health care. Nurses, registered nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, social workers, respiratory, th- up and down the line, right? Make sure we give credence to all of them because without one sector, without one discipline being adequately represented, the problems persist. And that's where the issue, I think, is glaring is even if you move some of these patients, hip and knee surgery, even if you just leave it to that, into a for-profit independent uh, offering, where are the doctors coming from? I mean, I don't think anyone's really adequately explained how that works. So if the private clinics will simply go to where the doctors are in their province, and that's currently working in the public system, so we're simply moving doctors out of public, which is already overwhelmed, into a for-profit private setting, So have we really advanced anything? Have we actually dealt with the backlog? Then you go into, look, and this is all hypothetical, but I think when you see the struggles and the way the premiers are talking about it and the want for more federal health care transfer dollars, which apparently an announcement is coming, that doesn't just magically create any more health care workers. So does that get us anywhere? Or is it simply, you know, one of those mechanisms that premiers and ministers of health may think that, you know, might come across with the smoke and mirrors of you're actually doing something to help, but will it actually help? Or will it further exacerbate the problems that already exist in healthcare? So, yeah, where you get the doctor to work in that clinic? 
And then if you talk about the ability for doctors to say yay or nay to one new patient or another, doesn't it stand to reason that in more and more private offerings, of which there's plenty of private in Canada already, that the private clinics would see patients with very fundamental needs, you know, general health care concerns, and those with complicated, complex medical needs would all be in the public system. So we might just be inadvertently making things worse. I don't know if it actually will help at all. Now, Premier Ford will say they'll be using a provincial medical card to pay, but that still means the government is funding it, albeit through, uh, I think it's called OHIP versus MCP in that province. But, you know, it's not to say that, that it's coming to a town near you, but it just might. And so we need someone to really paint us a picture as to how it's actually going to make things better because it just might make things worse. So anyway, profit's not a bad word, but when it's associated with healthcare, I think there's a bigger conversation. Same thing when we talk about public-private partnerships in healthcare, and the calculations of, it spares me a little bit of financial pain today, but has it just kicked the can down the road so that 30 years from now I end up paying more for the exact same service? And so we can take it on, if you're so inclined. And I see plenty of news outlets, virtually everyone that I checked in on in the last couple of days, talking about the new research that has come out regarding alcohol consumption and risks, risks for cancer, heart disease, and others. I mean, it's long been understood, and you know, it's, nothing is perfectly safe in this world, but it went from two drinks a day to two drinks a week, and the call for abstinence, which is a little bit easier said than done for so many people. But if you look at what is now going to be inevitably the next conversation here is folks who are advocates for protecting public health to talk about labeling on liquor products. Now, it's not that long ago that you were unable to sponsor big sporting events with liquor companies and or tobacco companies. And Canada has, I think this is uh, smoking cessation week, if I remember correctly. Is that tape? Okay. So Canada's really led the world in tobacco-related matters, education programs, labeling, and hiding them behind those cupboards in the gas stations and banning smoking on flights domestically and internationally when the original hub was a Canadian airport. I mean, it was 1963 when then Minister of Health and Welfare, Judy LaMarche, declared in the House of Commons that smoking causes lung cancer. And it took decades until there was a change to how we spoke about it and the admissions of what the tobacco industry already knew. And, you know, we were out there in front of the United States Surgeon General. It was a year before when Ms. LaMarche made the announcement or the declaration in the House of Commons. And now all these years later, arduous, timely, costly battles between industry and governments and health authorities to put some of these warnings in place. And look, people assess their own risk. They do. You know, we're also talking about highly addictive properties of both tobacco and alcohol. So I don't know if that's going to change anyone's opinion, but you know full well the next racket we're going to hear is all about labeling. Yes, because people will hear these reports, they'll read the stories, they'll hear them on their nightly newscast or right here on your radio newscasts, and it might change some behaviors, but like we talked about, say, for instance, regarding sugar tax, just applying a syntax really has proven not to be very effective. It took decades of lobbying and doing away with advertising opportunities and talking about labeling. Because in, as it pertains to tobacco, the numbers are really quite clear. It took a long while to get there, but let's see, I had the numbers right here in front of me. It's been in and out of the Supreme Court, too. In the 1960s, half a Canadian adult smoked. By 1995, it was less than a third. Today, it's about one in ten. So it took all that time and all those battles, legal and otherwise, for those to be the outcomes. But let's talk about it if you're so inclined. 
I read this particular news story with mixed emotions, I have to say. You know, I think we've learned more and more about how many Canadians are asking for medical assistance in dying. So the story is painted as being a bright picture about just how many people who have medical assistance in dying, MAID, we'll call it the acronym, that have had their organs harvested. Okay, so there was four countries evaluated in this paper, the first of its kind, Canada, Belgium, Netherlands, and Spain. 286 assisted death recipients provided life-saving organs for transplant to 837 patients in the years up to and including 2021. And of course, in this country, it was decriminalized in 2016. Half of the world's organ transplants after made for that period, 136 that is, took place in this country. So it's good, and we know the numbers of people that are on a wait list for an organ. There's more than 4,000 Canadians currently. But it's really difficult to make good news stories out of these medical assistance and dying stories, isn't it? Because, you know, I think there's a place for it, uh, out of compassion and dignity and people being able to make their choice, whether it be to have this assistance in hospital or in their own home. But here's where it gets extremely concerning. Stats say that 35% of Canadians who died by medical assistance in death in 2021 simply thought they were burdened. They felt hopeless. They thought they were burdened on their friends, their caregivers, their family. So it's not supposed to be there if you just feel like you're hopeless because you don't have the supports that could indeed be put in place. As opposed to you have uh, a terminal prognosis, you have lost all quality of life, excruciating pain. There's reasons, I think, where this makes sense. But obviously there's some huge gaps in what is actually sensible versus what's actually happening. Okay, a couple quick ones before you get to your call, and hopefully you're there. What's this story out of St. Mary's? If you have ever been to St. Mary's in the last 17, 20 years and have seen the abandoned fish sauce plant and have been anywhere close proximity to it, the stink is rancid. It really, truly is. So now, years and years later, there was an investigation done to the affluent that was running from the old fish sauce plant into the ocean. And when the investigation was done, we found, or it was found, that... The disaster zone, as people refer to it, is the affluent running into the ocean. You put the fish in it, they died in 15 minutes. It's toxic. It's deadly. It's lethal. So, DFO understood this. And so what they did is they capped the pipe to keep it from running into the ocean. Didn't do anything with the stink. I mean, there's vats inside with, what's in, pineapple juice and capelin. Oh, my God. Anyway, they never told the town about it. Their job was to, sp- uh, to spare or to save the fish. So Environment Canada, nobody did anything else. They didn't find out at the town until, I guess, Rob Antle and his crew at the CBC Investigates got this information after years of trying to get it. How can anyone at the federal level think that was the last step? Okay, the fish are fine now that we put a cap on a pipe. As opposed to, had the town known just how bad it was, maybe there would have been more and more efforts between the province, the town, the federal government to actually tear it down and remove the danger in full but just sitting on the information because, oh, well, it's not our job. We saved the fish. Too bad. So Mayor Steve Ryan, in particular, if you're listening this morning, Steve, feel free to give us a call because that's really bizarre stuff. And I know there was a representative of Munn's Faculty Association in studio with Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning talking about the strike, pending strike. Overwhelming strike mandate has been voted through. 93% of Munfa's membership have voted to do exactly that. I think that's an important uh, conversation. They represent some hundred ins- or 800 instructors, I, I believe, if I remember correctly. But there's lots of stories going around across the country 
And I know full well, you know, it's a conversation you have to have with your university or post-secondary secondary age child is about the cheating. The advent of some artificial intelligence, and in particular, what's it called? Chat GPT? Is that what it is, Dave? Chat GPT? It's so widely used. And in a matter of seconds, it can spit out, just by scoping and scanning internet data, it can, sco- it can spit out song lyrics, poems, computer code, and yes, essays. So they just looked at Western University in London, Ontario. 430 instances of what has been called scholastic offenses, cheating, plagiarism. That's double the year prior. So, you know, it does seem and feel so easy. If as opposed to researching, writing, and rewriting, I could just simply put a subject into this particular artificial intelligence and have them do all the work for me, just imagine the setback to your scholastic career and maybe what comes after your graduation because you just saw the temptation and you took it on. All right. And yes, the invitees, the participants have now been in Davos, Switzerland, for this year's World Economic Forum gathering. By and large, a collection of narcissistic, self-important blowhards, right? But if you want to talk about it, I suppose we can do that too. I want to say good morning and our condolences to the family and friends of Baxter Wareham, well-known Placentia Bay musician who was a prominent uh, member of the trad music landscape in this province, and I suggest well beyond our borders. So our condolences to the Wareham family. And also really pleased to see you this, my friend, Paul Pope. He's being recognized posthumously by the Canadian Cinema and Television Academy with a special award for this year, 2023. We know what he meant to the TV and film business here in this province, and the void he's left is undeniable. So he's being awarded the Academy Board of Directors Tribute. They say a giant in the Canadian media production community, an advocate for the industry in Newfoundland, He's amongst some pretty lofty company in sharing these special awards this year. Catherine O'Hara, Lisa Laflamme, and Ryan Reynolds, and of course, the late, and I'm going to say great, Paul Pope. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, you're in the queue. I can feel it in my water. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number three. Say good morning to the president at the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Where are we going today? I'm not going very far. I'm just getting over one of those viruses that's been circulating uh, throughout the province. Yeah, like wildfire, too. Over the holidays, I had this so-called sore throat bug that was going around, and that was just simply awful. Uh, but welcome to the show, and hopefully you're on the mend here ASAP. There's always going to be lots of things to discuss with the registered nurses union, whether it be vacancies, retention, or what have you. But let's start with what we see, I think, as a conversation happening around the country and actively happening and happening on the ground in the province of Ontario. And that's about trying to address backlogs by moving some surgical procedures out of the public setting into a for-profit setting. They'll talk about hip and knees to begin with, and it's going to extend beyond that. They say it can clear up the backlog. Your thoughts? Well, I was appointed to the Surgical Backlog Task Force here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, We still don't have a final report done, but we will be coming with recommendations. But it was very clear from the very beginning of our discussions, the number one issue um, that is impacting the backlog of surgeries is the nursing shortage here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And we know that we lost another 300 members last year who either left the healthcare system, uh, retired early, left the profession altogether, or left permanent full-time positions to go casual. 
And we do not see the erosion of our publicly funded healthcare system by going to private clinics as the solution here. What we need to be doing is keeping the registered nurses and other healthcare providers that we currently have in our system. So retention is what we should be focusing on. We're already focusing on recruitment, but we can't afford, right now we just spent $8.1 million on private agency nurses in this province last year. Yeah. And, get, and we lost another 300 while that was going on. And we're actually losing some of our members. They're just quitting and going to work with these travel agencies. So we will further erode our publicly funded healthcare system if we go down that road of privatization. Okay, before we get to a variety of points that you made there, people will talk about the rate of pay. You said over eight hundred million or pardon me, eight million dollars last year for the travel nurses, four point two alone in central. So what is the rate of pay versus working in the public sector as a registered nurse versus joining one of these travel agencies? How what is the disparity between pay? Well, our understanding is that the uh, contracts with these private agencies, they're paying upwards of $130 per hour to the agency. And now they're not allowed, they don't disclose to us how much they're actually paying the registered nurses or nurse practitioners. But the agency nurses are telling our members they're getting double the pay that our members here in the province are getting. Okay. the We talk about recruitment and retention as two quasi-separate items. If we're talking about retention issues and the amount of overtime required for those on the permanent list, and we know that the money's dangled for uh, casual RNs to join the permanent list has not been that successful as far as I can tell when I see the numbers, is it actually the same conversation, recruitment and retention? Because to ease the burden and reduce the work-life balance problems that are being experienced by RNs now, don't recruitment and retention numbers kind of work hand in glove? Because if not, just Help me understand why they should be so distinctly different, because more nurses would mean less pressure, wouldn't it? Uh, you're absolutely right there, Patty. We need retention and recruitment go hand in hand. It's no good to recruit people here to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador with the present working conditions that we have if we don't address those issues in the workplace and retain the people who are currently working in the system. And one of those concerns and issues, and everyone's heard me about this loud and clear, is the increased violence in the healthcare sector. We have the highest rate of injuries uh, of all workers in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we also have uh, the mandated overtime, the working short, the inability to get time off. So yes, extra bodies will help with the ability to get time off and reducing the mandated overtime. However, we need to address the other issues and we need to look at compensation. We have the lowest paid nurses in Canada, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And when they see a travel nurse, a private nurse coming and working and getting double their rate of pay, well, that of course gives them pause to think, why am I here slugging it out, trying to hold this broken system together when someone can just fly in for two weeks, three weeks, whatever, and get paid twice as much as me for doing the same work. You mentioned 300 additional vacancies. So, you know, same numbers we got from the NLMA and work done by Narrative Research. We went from 125,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians without a family doctor to 136,000. Last time we spoke, I think the RN vacancies were around 600. Has that other 300 number contributed and made that a bigger number today? 
Uh, well, we have asked the latest supply reports, vacancy reports came out in October, and we have been um, continuously asking for that report. Uh, and I still don't have it to this day, but I would guess we are closer to 700 vacancies as of right now. Can you further elaborate on the workplace injury? Is it simply because of exhaustion or is there more to it as to why we see those numbers growing? Well, one of the things we've been asking for is a health sector safety council. And a health sector safety council, uh, just like other industries, uh, the mining industry, uh, the fisheries industry, and that's with a high number of uh, injuries and incidents, have formed a sector safety council to address all of that. And our hope is to get a health sector safety council in Newfoundland and Labrador to address these high rate of injuries. And one of the things that we are seeing, there is an increase in the psychological stress injuries that uh, are being claimed through workplace now. And that goes to the exhaustion, both the mental and physical exhaustion of leaving work after a 12, 16, 24 hour shift and asking yourself, did I do everything that was needed? What did I miss? And that plays a major part in the psychological stress. But when you are exhausted and working upwards of 16, 20, 24 hours, your, the incidence of injury and the potential for injury gets higher with every extra hour that you work. Do you happen to know what the results were with the recruiting effort in India for registered nurses? Uh, the latest update I got was that they are hoping to have some nurses here on the ground in by the summer, but I have not been given any numbers. Um, you know, we have to be ethical with our recruitment as well. We're going to countries, and I keep saying this, like Ireland, um, where nurses are on strike at the moment because of unsafe working conditions. We're competing with each other throughout Canada for nursing resources and other healthcare resources. And we're competing globally because we are in a global nursing shortage. And anything that's going to pull more nurses out of the system, if we can't get registered nurses here to work in the public healthcare system, where do we think we're going to get them to work in a private clinic? They're coming out of the public system, which further erodes our public system. Well, it seems like we're just shuffling people around, very similar to how some of the collaborative care clinics have been staffed. You know, unless they're new entrants to healthcare, then not exactly sure. Even though I think collaborative care clinics are an excellent idea uh, in theory and in concept, uh, what faces an international nurse upon arrival? Like, what kind of time are we talking about? Someone from India, for instance, who arrives, they talk about similar training and what have you, but what's the process to get them fully licensed and accredited? You know, time and what exactly is entailed in that? Well, they have to go through our college and, uh, you know, our college representatives have been on the ground over in India for each of the visits that's been made so far. Um, and, you know, they are English proficient, so their training is in English, uh, their education. So that was one of the biggest barriers that we faced with internationally educated nurses. But one of the things we've been saying for a long time, so it's going to take time to orientate uh, to our health system because their healthcare system is different than ours. Less, you know, we do have a better healthcare system. Uh, so to get orientated uh, is one thing, and that takes time, you know, months. But one of the things that we're hearing loud and clear is we need to have more support and mentorship for these internationally educated nurses when they come here and work in uh, our public healthcare system. And we also need support for them 
integrating into our culture and our um, province and communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. So there's a lot of work that will go into getting internationally educated nurses up to speed in our system and to get them comfortable in our culture. However, if the working conditions don't change here, which goes to the retention part, we will just be a stepping stone like other professions um, where people coming internationally to Newfoundland, a stepping stone to somewhere else in Canada if we can't fix the working conditions that we're presently working under. Let me see how I ask this one. So you mentioned the word culture. We're told we have more healthcare professionals working in the province now than ever before, and the population has not grown commensurate with the numbers of doctors, nurses, and other professionals. So in the world of culture, my mother was a nurse. Is the demand, or are the demands on nurses any different now with patient-to-staff ratio or hours worked or duties required? Is it, has it changed the culture of how much people are willing and wanting to do these days? Or is there something more to it? Because, you know, I think if we speak to nurses who retired 20 years ago, they'll be familiar with what's required of them on a day-to-day basis. And yet we didn't hear these types of concerns, even though I still see people driving around with that Brian Tobin uh, license plate, nurses will remember. Uh, oh, and we do. And you do. But has it also the culture and the attitude of how much people are willing to do changed, which has the, the impact that we're hearing about in healthcare? Because I don't know if the roles have changed dramatically, but certainly the response from the frontline workers has. Uh, well, there's two things going on there because the work has changed. Uh, we just went through um, a huge consultation process with the health court NL, and I was part of that leadership team. And we heard loud and clear, we have the highest rates of chronic diseases, such as cardiac cancer, highest rates of cancer in the country, uh, with the poorest outcomes here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And 25 years ago, when I went in to have um, a ligament uh, surgery on my knee, I was in hospital for almost two weeks. That's day surgery now. We are only seeing the sickest of the sickest in the healthcare system right now. And we are pushing them out the door as quick as possible and to our community resources, but which we haven't increased resources, by the way. We're pushing more and more out. We're doing more and more in the community. We're doing chemotherapy um, disconnections in the community, uh, wound care management in the community, um, I mean, the IV therapy, so IV antibiotics. Normally, you'd have to be admitted to get IV antibiotics uh, or go into an emergency department two, three times a day to get your IV. Now we're doing all that in the community. Plus, we're doing home support uh, assessments uh, and other supports for palliative care. Palliative care is increased in the community as well. So what we have in the hospital now compared to 20 years ago, they are way sicker. And I worked on orthopedics 32 years ago, and, you know, I had a complement of patients. Some were immediately in their post-operative period, so they were the sickest. And then I had those who were like me when I had my knee surgery, who were there for two weeks. On demand, able, you know, probably care for myself, waiting uh, to get moving a bit better, to get discharged. You don't have that now. The patient assignments that our registered nurses and, uh, have and other healthcare professionals, they're all sick. And they're all requiring increased care. I appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Would you like to say anything else before I have to go to uh, get to the break? Uh, I'd like to say, you know, there's been comments made in the public arena about the private uh, health care and private clinics to address the backlog in that. 
it's a very slippery slope. We heard loud and clear and, you know, the Health Accord NL uh, transformation document talks about the socioeconomic status of people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I know that when I worked in the coronary care unit, and we're talking over 10 years ago now, that we would have people come back from the States who got sick, had a cardiac event, and had to have open-heart surgery. And I'd be there changing a dressing, probably just getting a Band-Aid. And a patient would look at me and say, oh, no, 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 I don't need that Band-Aid or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you do. And then they would tell me that every single item that was used for their care was uh, coded so that the bill was there when they left for a Band-Aid, an alcohol swab, whatever. And coronary artery bypass surgery back then was over a hundred grand. So if you don't have private medical insurance, where are you coming up with a hundred thousand dollars to pay for your bypass surgery? And also with the radiation therapists, we're hearing loud and clear we have a shortage of radiation therapists. How does going into a public arena or a public uh, private uh, clinic fix? the treatment that we're giving to our patients who have cancer and are waiting on radiation treatment. Retention is the key. Investing in the people who are working in our broken system is the key here, not further eroding our publicly funded healthcare system. Appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Esavet Coffee. she's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Lots there to pick up on. Of course, you can pick up a topic of your choosing and join us right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Christina. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I was talking to you there last week uh, about my son uh, waiting uh, for treatment for yes, yeah, so the, uh, Ms. Tremblett, I welcome the update here today. Now, just so I don't shag this up, is it Christine or Christina? Christine. Okay, Christine, welcome to the show. What's the update? So, uh, there's not really a whole lot, but uh, he did go see his family doctor on Monday, and uh, his family doctor did do up a letter for him uh, stating that uh, there's no availability in the province and uh, he's hoping that the province would find uh, uh, financially to support my son in going to Bellwood. Uh, I sent that letter to RMHJ for Lake Melville. Uh, I, it was sent to Sandy Penny, which is one of the managements for mental health and addiction. I did ask my MHA to uh, forward that to the uh, the Premier and all the ministers. Um, Bellwood had reached out to me personally on Friday, uh, just asked uh, who I was speaking to and what was the updates. And so I'm just waiting to hear back from them to see who they're reaching out to. And uh, uh, I emailed... Uh, PC leader, I guess he stole the PC leader uh, last evening, and thankfully he acknowledged me. Uh, uh, I am somebody because he got back to me last evening, and uh, he's going to reach out to me today and uh, have a conversation. Just one second, uh, Christine. Let me paint the picture here, maybe a little clearer. So we spoke with Christine Tremblett last week. Her son has a serious addiction to crack cocaine, I think it is. So. 
he, uh, you had a meeting with some representatives of government, and you were very encouraged when you left because the the programs here in this province are about three weeks in length versus the three months that he can get at that facility in Ontario. You thought you were going to be able to get some financial support to send him up there because you thought and he thought that three weeks would not get the job done with the severity of his addiction. So that's where we are, and that's the update we're talking about, just so people have a bit of backstory here to follow along. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, and um, uh, my son had an email from Humblewood on uh, Tuesday just to let him know that the wait is still uh, four weeks or longer, even before he can still get in. And uh, when Bellwood had called me, they still had the availability. Like, I just don't understand, like, why our province don't help these people that are looking for the help, like... Like my son, I just can't imagine how dark he is because I'm dark. And I mean, I'm going through problems myself. Like I had a my a teleconference on Tuesday and there's two of my cancer spots that's uh, getting smaller, but there's one that's getting bigger. And I need my son to be with me. Is he going to try the a provincial program, even though we know the wait times can be as much as four to six weeks, even to get into a local program? Is he going to give that a shot and see what that does? Because well, I think yes, the story said if he did that first, then that increased the likelihood of uh, public funding to get to the 90-day treatment in Ontario. Yeah, I know. Um, yes, he told him he's ready to go to that one. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there's, Still a, a four-week or longer wait. Like, I mean, my boy's been waiting since the end of October. I mean, he's had, had got no interaction with anybody other than me. And, I mean, it's not fair what they're doing. I mean, it's really not fair what they're doing. And, I mean, like I said, when I met with the Premier and the couple of people that were sitting there, I mean, like, when I left that office, I mean, I left, like, with a... a uh, a, a really good positive outlook because I really thought the province was going to help my son get this treatment in Bellwood. That's the impression when I left that office. And when I left that office, it was like to just closed the door on me like I was nobody. Some of the hardest things that we try to deal with is uh, for people to finally acknowledge and to realize they are ready to get help. So when that happens... We've got to be there to help them because for many, they never come to that realization. They'll always push it to the back of their mind. They'll fight off the family and others who love them and say, you need some help. And they just, they never come to that point where they're willing and wanting to go get it. So when they do, boy, oh boy, it shouldn't be this circumstance that you and your son are living with. Uh, anything else, Christine, before we say goodbye this morning? I know you're hurting. No, I just wish the province would reach out and help him. Like, it's only money. It's only money. Money is nothing. Lives, lives should be more important than money. I don't, I don't really want you to look down a dark road, but what do you think is going to happen here? I don't know what's going to happen, Patty, but I mean, I'm going to keep doing what I can do. I mean, I'm going to keep fighting for the province to... Help my boy. I mean, he wants the help. He needs the help. I mean, he has two kids of his own. I mean, like that. I mean, you know, I mean, he's a father and 
He needs the help. He needs to get better. I wish him well. It's on my list for issues to broach with the health, health minister in particular because, I mean, we hear all the time about the rampant drug use and alcohol abuse and all the rest of it. So when help is asked for, I mean, I think we owe it to people to get them the help because it comes with a huge price. And I don't mean dollars and cents. I mean impact on the individual, impact on their family like yourself. So it's a bigger conversation that really deserves a lot more traction and discussion. Christine, I'm sorry, go right ahead. I am waiting to hear back from uh, Dr. Young. His assistant reached out to me last Friday. So that's Todd Young out at Medicuro, the virtual health? Uh, I'm not sure, cause, but okay. I, I know his assistant reached out to me last Friday. I think he's out of Springdale, maybe? That's right. That would be Dr. Todd Young. Yep. Yeah, so I'm. Uh, his assistant reached out to me last Friday, so uh, I'm just waiting now to uh, have an update from them or hear from him himself. Well, let me know how that goes. He's had some great success dealing with patients virtually, even on addictions matters. Uh, let us know how that works, Christine, and I wish you and your son well. Thank you very much, Pat. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Whew. Uh, let's take a break. Peter's in the queue. Appreciate your patience, Peter. He'd like to talk about COVID vaccinations. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Peter, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, first time, long time. Welcome. Um, I'd like to uh, um, like ask you a question. Uh, has your stance on the vaccine changed? Uh, I know like from the start, everybody thought that, uh, you know, we must and we should do this and Whatever, but like since lately, now has your stance at all changed on the vaccine? Why? What was my stance? Well, I, I don't know. Like uh, you know, not your stance, but as in like you know, encouraging people or or whatnot. Like you know, everybody encouraged at the start was encouraging people to get the vaccine or whatnot. You know, what I'm I mean? not sure I did everybody much of that. Got- I, I think what I've done right from the very beginning is. When it comes to issues of medical treatment, people should do what they think is right for them and or in consultation with their doctor. I made a decision based on my own thoughts, whether it be for me and the conversation with my family. But the mandate sort of drove uh, the vaccine conversation. And, of course, I have nothing to do with them. I still haven't changed my mind on, on safety. The issue about you can still catch it, you can still transmit it. I, I've seen all those stories. I know them to be true. So I don't know what kind of stance I've really had now versus then. But, you know, whether or not I'm willing to take a COVID vaccine, I still am. Okay. So, uh, like, just recently now, the CDC has admitted that there's a link between strokes and the vaccine. I don't know if you're aware of yeah, that. Yeah, I see all those stories. You, yeah, because you won't see it on the CBC News, Betty, or in TV News. You know what I mean? It's just... You know, they're not going to just come out and say it. But, like, for me, and, like, millions like me, uh, I'm angry that I had to take this vaccine. If there's a link between strokes and, and this vaccine, I'm angry that I had to take this vaccine in order to keep my job. Now, did I have to? No, I didn't have to. But I loved my job, and I didn't want to lose my job. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of and, people will understand that thought. You know, when it comes to lists of adverse effects, 
You know, the list is extensive, and we all know it, but it doesn't mean that everything on the list has actually happened. It just means that these are potential risks. I think sometimes we kind of misread and talk about some of those issues in a kind of a clumsy fashion. Just think about some of the drugs that we will see advertised on television for one thing or another. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. Most of the the commercial will be about what the adverse effects are, not what the benefits are. Right. You watch that commercial, and and you'd be like, my God, I I wouldn't take that... you know what I mean? Because every everything possibly could happen to you uh, if you take this medic- medication. I don't know. It's, uh, it's strange for sure, but uh, I don't know. I'm just uh, uh, you know, I'm just upset that uh, we were forced to, and um, you know. Um, Mandates were always going to be a problem, Peter, and nobody yeah. can point to one single area or one day or one thing I've ever said that I thought mandates were the best idea. I know why they were put in place. And, you know, like even the travel mandate, I could only use myself as an example. Having quarantine uh, for non-vaccinated Canadians to me made no sense. Why? Because I was fully vaccinated and I got it, you know, and I came back from England yeah. with it. So, right. you know, the here's where it gets kind of confusing for me, though, to be honest with you. There is a group of people, and I don't know if you're in this group or not, and this is not, you know, uh, insinuation or finger pointing, that at the beginning it was, we're never going to get the vaccine, we're never going to get vaccinated, Uh, Trudeau has duped us all, we're going to be until 2030 before we get the vaccine, then all of a sudden it happened very quickly. And then the same people were saying, well, there's no long-term test. But long-term testing and vaccines, you know, you can look around the world and, you know, talk about how long mRNA has actually been investigated in a laboratory setting. And now, again, it gets even a bit more confusing and a little bit more frustrating is that every single person who dies for whatever reason, it's because of the vaccine. It makes the conversation almost impossible. You know, like Lisa Marie Presley last week, guys. And automatically, yeah. it's all about the vaccine, not the fact that right. she's been living in despair, not the fact that she's got well-recorded long-term health concerns and abuse yeah. problems. So that's why I don't know how many times I can have vaccine conversations because every death is a vaccine all of a sudden. Do you feel the same way yeah. about that? Yeah, well, uh, to some people, uh, every death uh, is a vaccine. But, uh, you know, when when we see and when we hear, uh, uh, you know, so much cardiac problems going on right now and the sudden deaths that are happening, it's, uh, it's very uh, concerning. I know that. I've actually asked, asked Dr. Fitzgerald about excess deaths and how we report adverse effects of a vaccine from all the way from sore arm all the way to more, much more serious matters. And, you know, inside those world of the uh, excess number of deaths, You know, for the group that attributes every single one of them to the vaccine and absolutely none of them to having had COVID, which absolutely has complications with all types of things, including blood clots, including myocarditis, including all of these things which we some people attribute to the vaccine, it's made the conversation extremely difficult to have. I have never denied there's a potential for an adverse effect. The lists are there. But if someone's pointing me to one of the VAERS, the VAERS sites, that's also not helpful. Anti-vaccination has become part of a cottage industry. And if you're able to self-report adverse effects, how seriously can we take some of those comments, some of those numbers? So I'm happy to have real, honest, open conversation about the vaccines. But I think it's kind of gotten away from us a little bit. Yeah. Patty, when, when, it, uh, uh, you know, when the first uh, COVID came out and they put out the numbers, like, uh, what is it, 98% chance you'll uh, live with this and all this kind of stuff, um, it... Uh, uh, you know, was the vaccine really necessary in the first place, especially for children? Like, I got a five-year-old, and to even think about putting that in his arm now, like, not a chance. Like, I, 
I'd move mountains not to get that uh, for him. But uh, And that should be yeah. all right. Like, no one under the yeah. age of 18 has been co- coerced, forced, or mandated to take it. And there's lots yeah. of literature about whether or not it's necessary for children of certain ages, and I think that's a fair well, conversation Patty, that we should have. So, Patty, like, even a year ago, our uh, premier here was bragging on the radio that he, uh, us as Newfoundlanders, was leading the country in kids' vaccinations. It was like, I couldn't believe it. Like, it just... To me, it's astounding. I don't know. Here's something I'll also put out there is, you know, if people at one point said you can't get it if you get vaccinated, some people said that, and it kind of sounded stupid anyway, simply because even the Pfizer's and Moderna's of the world didn't say it was 100%. They talked about efficacy around, you know, 96 or 4 or whatever percent they used at the beginning. So in this province, given the average age Given the chronic health problems we have, given the prevalence of diabetes and heart conditions and the like, and I don't know how to say this appropriately, but there's, uh, there has not been 300 COVID-related deaths in the province. To me, that sounds like the prevention of severity of disease and potential death from the virus has been limited by the vaccine. Because, I mean, look at other jurisdictions with much more healthy demographics, and they've had more deaths and less vaccination or lower vaccination rates. So... You know, I think there's a school of thought that says the vaccine has kept people from being very seriously ill in this province. I mean, we have the oldest population in the country. We're number one in the league for a bunch of serious health, underlying health conditions. So, and we all know, the list of comorbidities leads to the potential for severe illness. Yeah, I agree, Patty. But, like, uh, to me, uh, I agree with somewhat of that. But to me, um, uh, if there was no vaccine, all these people would still be alive, in my opinion. I don't know if anyone can appropriately answer or even address that question because who knows? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I have I'm no right, earthly idea. Who knows, exactly. And, and it was definitely on a who knows for taking it in the first place, you know, whether or not you're going to get one of these reactions when 99% chance you're going to live anyway. So you know what I mean? We didn't need it. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody actually knows. I hear it and I see a lot of people saying exactly that based on what I'm not really sure. But, uh, Peter, I, I do appreciate the reasonable conversation we've had because I've had a lot of vaccine conversations which have been the furthest thing from reasonable. Would you like to say yeah. anything else this morning? No, my buddy. Thanks, Todd, and appreciate everything you do for Pre- us Newfoundlanders. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Peter. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, how are we doing on the phone, David? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the executive director of the Newfoundland Labrador Alliance for the Control of Tobacco. That's Kevin Cody. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, sir. How about yourself? Good, thank you. Good man. So there is a smoking cessation week. There's been conversations over the years with offering smoking cessation tools to people who earn certain amounts of money. So is there anything changed on that front? Because we never really went too far down that path. Uh, it's not a great change. The uh, the government has offered, uh, you know, the the tools or the resources that are available to some people with the low income, the uh, people on the <clears throat> on the drug assistance program. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a big step in itself, I suppose. Ideally, we'd like to get to where other provinces are, like British Columbia, uh, and offer help to everyone, regardless of 
income because we know smokers are out there who want to quit and uh, w- whether they're making uh, $100,000 or $20,000 bottom line is they need help to quit so uh, we'd like to see it go further but uh, we'll see where that where that goes in the future I guess the numbers are pretty startling uh, right across the country so in the 60s about two-thirds pardon me uh, in the 60s, about half Canadian smoke, 1995, less than a third. Today, it's about one in 10. What's proven to be most effective so far as a cessation tool? Because I've said this many times, simply adding a syntax wasn't the be-all and end-all. So the education campaigns and the change in packaging and the warning labels and hiding them behind those cupboards in the stores, what have you, they all play an active role. But for the actual cessation tool, has there been one program, one player, one process than another that's been the most effective? Do we know? I don't think we know, and uh, I don't think there is one particular tool. It's, uh, it has to be a package. It has to be, uh, you know, you have to set a plan. You have to get uh, maybe counseling along with the, uh, the, the products that can help you. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a one-shot deal. Some people would like to believe that they can, they can just... Uh, do one thing tomorrow and that'll that'll get them over that hump but uh, bottom line is patty it's a it's a huge task to quit smoking uh people try it many many times and fail and uh, obviously keep trying is the key it can be done but it's not easy you need support you need to get to a group like the smokers helpline or the uh the, the school of pharmacy and get the correct information of how best to set a plan and how best to proceed and of course i think they will point out that you need to be patient you need to be determined and you need help i think the risks are well understood and the proofs in the pudding one in ten canadians now spoke when compared to half of canadians or thereabouts in the 1960s let's talk about risk reduction based on quitting like time frames between you know, the end of week one, the end of year one, the year of, end of year five, whatever we know about it. How can you articulate those risk reductions based on quitting? Well, there are studies out there that indicate that, you know, within weeks of, uh, of quitting, probably even within days, uh, a, a Dr. Leslie Phillips, who was on your program, could best speak to this, obviously. But uh, there are studies out there that indicate that uh, within a short period of time after quitting, uh, lungs will improve. Uh, small things, small positive things will happen. And uh, the bottom line is, if you can get there to quitting uh, over time, and it doesn't—I don't think—take a lot of time. You will have improved breathing, improved energy, improved uh, ability to do things you couldn't do before. So it's all positive. But again. Not not easy to get there. The road to where we are today regarding tobacco usage in, in the country is actually fascinating. Regarding all the Supreme Court challenges and uh, lobbyists regarding uh, representing the tobacco industry, it was in fact in 1963 that then Minister of uh, National Health and Welfare, Julie LaMarche, declared that smoking causes lung cancer. And that's actually a year before the U.S. Surgeon General did the exact same thing. Then all the fights regarding labeling and warnings and education programs there's been a lot of lessons learned, and I know this is not your bellywick, but now that we've seen the most recent research regarding alcohol, 
there's going to be the next steps will, which will be labelling and education. What lessons do you think the liquor industry and public health authorities had or should have learned regarding the tobacco campaigns? Well, I guess the, the, the lesson learned is uh, education. Uh, people need the education. I mean, we're, uh, as you say, back in the 60s, uh, smoking was just so acceptable, so common. Uh, we sat around tables, played cards, blew smoke at each other, etc. cetera. Uh, no one knew. The education wasn't out. The, the information wasn't out. So I guess uh, as... As others go down the road, if they see an issue that's hurting people, people have to be informed. And that's, that's the role we play with, the, with tobacco. You know, we're trying to get the uh, information out for people to make their own decision. I mean, if we're talking about adults, adults have every right to smoke. But they also need to know what consequences come with that smoking and then hopefully make the right decision decision are the numbers any different in this province you know it's one in ten nationwide what about the numbers of newfoundland labrador specifically yeah unfortunately they are different and and it's not good news it's uh you know while the the national average may be around 10 we both studies that we rely on at least indicate that the uh it's more like 18 to 20 uh, percent smoking in our province. Not a good thing, obviously, but, uh, you know, it is a reality. And again, trying to get the message out to people so that they can deal with it is the key. The other issue that we have right now, of course, is with young people, the vaping issue. People are The young people are gone somewhat uh, wild on that vaping uh, uh, routine and it's very scary i mean we know 40 percent of our grade 7 to 12 students have tried vaping that's that's huge and of course i think we all see it on the streets and so on so uh we're putting a lot of effort into getting information to the teachers that they can relay to the students tied into their curriculum and hopefully realize that vaping can and will lead to a lifetime of addiction to nicotine and uh, you're going down the same road that smokers went down again i don't know if you'll have the info on this front but we've seen all kinds of governments state governments in the united states of america and in this province there was a threat and i think a follow-through to sue tobacco companies for some health-related illness uh, costs here I haven't heard anything about it, and I'm going to guess this was like a decade ago that the conversation began. Do you happen to know if it's a, even still a thing? Is it proceeding through the courts? Do you have any information at all on that one? There's not a lot of information, but it is still alive. Uh, you know, our government, along with governments across the country, uh, are certainly taking the tobacco industry to court or want to take the tobacco industry to court. They have uh, they have such deep pro- uh, pockets that... They seem to be able to put it off and put it off and delay it and put it off again. But, uh, yes, it's still going, and uh, the hope is at some point there will, be, uh, there will be some help coming our way to the Newfoundland government to hopefully offer more help to the smokers who are affected directly. But, you know, it's going to take some time, but it's happening slowly. And, uh, 
you know, there have been some there have been some separate cases uh, where it's uh, gone against the tobacco industry and the vaping industry in certain states in the United States. So I think it's just a matter of time, but it is in the works. You know, and some of these things just boil back to very fundamental things, not just even about packaging, for instance. I'm old enough to remember sitting down to watch television shows where Marcus Welby was smoking in his office. There was smokes being uh, consumed in the hospitals and in every public building, and it, it was just wild. It was just so normal, and it was so romanticized. You know, the Marlboro Man went a long way to selling a bunch of Marlboros, I would suggest. So when that stuff went by the wayside, and the ladies' golf tournament was no longer the Maurier, and the race in Montreal was no longer sponsored by Rothmans, things changed. And changed quickly, because we're talking about generational uh, changes of behavior and thoughts and acceptance. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you look back to 1963. And the country, we were the first country on the face of the earth to ban smoking on domestic aircraft and air travel. So there's, there's lots of uh, that went into the numbers as to where they are today. Uh, and final thoughts, Kevin, before we say goodbye. Yeah, no, just to echo what you're saying there, tremendous change has taken place, all for the good. But of course, it's 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 a difficult process. Uh, it's you know more change is going to be needed. Uh, for example, as the vaping crisis unfolds, we've got to get the flavors out of the vape uh, out of the vapes so that uh, young children are not looking for their strawberry fix and so on and so forth. It, it takes time, but the tobacco industry they play. Oh, what happened there, Dave? Not so sure. Uh, we got disconnected with Mr. Cody. If, if he has a final thought to offer today, we're happy to have him back on. But let's go ahead and take a break. Jerry's there, wants to respond to Peter's comments regarding vaccinations. Gary also would like to respond to a caller that was just on that's Christine regarding her son's need for some addiction treatment. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, rejoin line number one, uh, Kevin Cody from ACT. Kevin, you're back on the air, sir. I don't know what happened. We got disconnected, but final thoughts from you, sir. Yeah, Patty, I think you were just after referencing all the great changes like no smoking on airlines or in doctor's offices and uh, teaching staff rooms and so on and so forth. And that's, yes, no doubt about it. All this has made a great difference, and that's why the rates, thankfully, are going down, but not down uh, totally where we would like to see them. Uh, The key to remember, though, is that there's still a lot to be done. We have a lot of people out there still looking for help to quit, and we have to continue to find a way to offer that help. We have people out there who are crucified with secondhand smoke, especially in apartment buildings. We get calls on it daily, and there's so little we can do for them because the legislation is not there. Uh, there's a lot to be done. The vaping issue with children, uh, they shouldn't be able to go out and get the flavors of uh, strawberry and bubble gum and so on, which gets them addicted. And then the parents have to deal with a a major issue moving forward. So there's a lot to be done, and uh, we hope that people stay in tune, check out the websites, get the information, and we'll do our best to get the information into the schools. Appreciate the time, Kevin. Appreciate this, and stay in touch. Thank you. All the best. Kevin Cody, the ED at ACT. Let's go to line number two. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Um, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, second time uh, uh, caller. I just uh, I heard uh, the tale of your um, uh, discussion with or your conversation with Peter, and I have a couple of points that I would like to make uh, regarding the vaccinations. Okay. Um, I um, 
uh, I've been uh, observing, and, and one thing that I would like to point out, it's, it's absolutely necessary for, on an individual basis, each, um, each one of us to try to uh, evaluate uh, the, the whole uh, uh, spectrum of, of information that uh, uh, came to us in the past couple of years, uh, almost now since the vaccinations uh, uh, campaign was released. And for me personally, um, that's uh, my all my family uh, is uh, got the vaccine, and I've been vaccinated a number of times before. Now, when with with those, uh, since was um, I don't know how long the mRNA technology had had been researched, but it was actually a brand new approach to uh, go and uh, max vaccinate the population. So I'm uh, around 50 years old. Uh, not I don't have any uh, health uh, issues. I said I'm going to wait and, and see, uh, you know, how how it goes. So just took a little bit cautious approach um, with the, with the new procedure, and then I started uh, um, seeing those. Uh, the FDA was uh, initially refused to um, release the, the uh, trials data for 75 years, uh, supposedly because they didn't have enough staff to process it. So there was uh, a court order needed, and a judge had to order for them to do it within a year. Um, that was a red flag for me. But what and was I, what was revealed when the, that document came to the public light? Well, Anything? Uh, I, yes, yeah. Actually, it was revealed that uh, in the first 90 days, there were more people uh, injured and more deaths in the in the vaccine um, uh, group than under in the in the un, uh, compared to the unvaccinated. It's like if anybody. It, and and that's that's what um, I'll tell you. I I grew up in a in a former communist country, and from the very beginning, all those uh, little things, how like certain parts of um, how the information was presented to to the public, it it uh, it was a striking resemblance for of, with all the propaganda that I was uh, accustomed of hearing for years, for decades, until the, the communist society. Pre- for the most part in Eastern Europe, uh, collapsed. Uh, that, that was one thing. And then, like, I, I would like to recommend to you and to your listeners, um, for the past few months, uh, doctor, a couple of very prominent uh, cardiologists, uh, one of them is the young British cardiologist, Dr. Asim Malhotra, uh, from UK, he's uh, very outspoken now. He um, actually, in the beginning, promoted. Uh, he was trying to um, kind of uh, deal with the vaccine hesitancy himself, until um, his dad, who encouraged him to get the vaccine, also a doctor. Six months after the vaccine, had a, um, a heart attack and unfortunately passed. So Dr. Malhotra, he, he was shocked because he said, uh, my, I know my dad, I've regularly examined him. And it was uh, when they did the autopsy, it was a striking um, difference in his heart situation. So he kept, uh, he didn't say anything in the beginning. He started reevaluating the data, did um, several uh, uh, peer-reviewed um, studies, 
and he's come to the conclusion that the vaccines are much more uh, harmful that that uh, they present uh, the benefits that supposedly um, present. And, and it's, it's not just him; it's Dr. Peter McCullough. I, yes, I, I mean, but last... that name has been banging that drum he, for he, quite a long time. He, I think he, there's uh, reasons to he, be suspicious of McCullough, to be honest. And causation okay. and correlation are two distinctly different things in this world. I, and I just, agree with you. Just think about it out loud for one second here. So. Mm-hmm. There's been somewhere in the neighborhood of about 13 billion doses of the COVID vaccines, the different COVID vaccines administered throughout the world. If the risk is, as some people put it, we would be talking about hundreds of millions of people dead. And that's just not the case. And mRNA, the messenger RNA, and this is not in support of or uh, support or encouraging of. This is just the facts that we, as we understand them. The uh, messenger RNA vaccine was first discovered in the laboratory in 1961. Laboratory okay. proceedings took place throughout the course of the 70s and moved on into real clinical trials, as we used for all vaccines in the past, on mice and what have you, in a laboratory setting. So when we call it new, new was not really a very specific reference to how long people have known and understood and uh, studied mRNA vaccines. And, you know, then the initial rollout all came under the banner of for emergency use only. And that was a red flag for many people, and I get that except for the fact that the emergency use of vaccines is not new to this particular vaccine. When there was an Ebola outbreak in the Middle East regarding military men and women, there was an emergency use vaccine. There was an emergency use vaccine for SARS, for MERS, for some of the mm-hmm. avian-related flu, flu illnesses that are out there. So those things all added up to a red flag in some corners, but they were never new. The, the, the issue regarding vaccines has grown from when all of a sudden it was related to uh, autism, which, of course, is simply 100% not true. And then it became more of a cottage industry. Then we saw outbreaks of things like measles happen again. So hesitancy has turned into complete mistrust of the issues. But inside the world of 13 billion-ish doses uh, doled out, uh, you don't see the numbers if what some of the issues that McCullough's of the world and others talk to because they're, they're just not there. And, you know, no, uh, and okay. just last comment for me, you know, like it, it's experimental yeah. throughout the course of history. Anything that's been experimental has not been delivered first to the most prosperous first world countries. It's been the exact opposite. When people were experimenting with drugs, it went to the impoverished nations, to the people without the information at their fingertips that we in the first developed world would have. And the exact opposite happened with mRNA vaccines for COVID. It went to the I richest think. countries first. And you know what? That is probably the very fact that uh, kind of uh, for for most of us it puts our guards down Be- because your your uh, way of, lo- of logic and you're very right that that is the fact. And now because it's uh, it's exactly the opposite case, we uh, a lot of a lot of us say, okay, it's it's got to be. You know, I have friends, uh, dear friends of mine. And when I um, try to say, okay, we, we should be cautious, and um, he says, well, Jerry, uh, surely goodness, you know, exactly the, the, the logic that you presented, uh, and, then, and then embrace it. And, okay, I totally agree with you. Maybe it's, uh, it's, it's hard to judge how many, um, but uh, Dr. McCullough said one thing, and I, I, I know I've heard it from many doctors, that with a new... Um, uh, new medicine or new procedure, if uh, there are 50 deaths occurred, this needs to be stopped, taken off the market for further um, investigations and further studies. 
I can guarantee you there there many folds fifty. Even if it, they're not uh, thousands, there are many folds fifty people like dying within minutes after uh, the, the second. And that's the thing. It uh, it appears that first shot, okay, I'm fine. Second shot, yeah, I had a little bit of a reaction. But when you keep going for boosters after the uh, third booster, there is so much spike protein in our bodies accumulated, and this is a toxin. And, and our immune system is not, it, it could lead to um, autoimmune um, disease uh, re- reaction in the future. It's like, it's unknown. We don't know the, the uh, long-term effects. That's, that's, we do uh, know that the spike yes, protein yes. doesn't last forever, though. That's one thing. Uh, that's for sure, yeah. because we also talked yeah. about efficacy over a certain amount of time when compared to, say, for instance, natural immunity. So, look, uh, okay. There's also, you know, whether yeah. or not it's going to be banning it, and some people have told me certain countries have banned X, Y, and Z, which is obvi- it's obviously not true either. There has been some no. declarations made by, in certain countries about whether or not it is advisable for young, healthy children to take it. Fair enough. Then you go on to the whole bit about people dropping dead. We just don't see the numbers. But the definition of fully vaccinated has not changed. It's still the two shots in the primary series. Uh, that's it for fully vaccinated. Even when the province updates their hub, I have to admit, I'm not so sure I'm following along with the numbers very clearly. Yesterday, the update said 25 new hospitalizations. The last update we had that was two weeks prior to that was there was, I think, 36 in hospital. Mm -hmm. So was it 25 on top of 36? Then they talk about vaccination status and 24% of the population has it. Their definition now sounds like two shots in the primary series plus one booster. But none of those definitions have changed, even throughout all the course of the mandates, whether it be for a public sector employment or travel or whatever. So, I, I mean, I don't know. And again, yeah, people I, will do as they yeah. see fit. But it, it, the it, definitions it, have it, not changed. And I don't see the numbers the same way I guess a lot of people do. I make my own decisions. You'll make yours on behalf of yourself and your children, exactly. and so be it. And in, in uh, like, kind of in the spirit of, um, if if you are convinced um, that y- you know uh, your position is truth, you try in a, in a possible a most friendly way to uh, just share your uh, your views and uh, you know pray that uh, you're saying the right thing and and the truth and uh, help your neighbor help your neighbor. You know what I mean. Um, uh, one one last point um, about the preventing the transmission and uh, and also uh, the uh, how effective they are. Um, the preventing the transmission it became abundantly apparent that they don't. But if anybody um, goes back and uh, especially in in the United States that was the the most because uh, you know CNN. Um, you you can pull out Joe Biden and said, yeah, go get your vaccine. And if you want to stop the virus, do it for your uh, um, nanny or do it for, you know, that, that was the main thing that the children uh, started getting encouraged to get. Yeah, vaccinated. But if you took all your guidance from a politician, that's a flawed process to begin with. 
in my personal opinion. And just for clarification, I'm not trying to friendly or otherwise convince anyone to do anything. I assessed mm -hmm. my own personal risk and made my own personal decision. That's it. No more, That's no less. And regarding transmission, what I've said every single step of the way, and no one can prove this to be untrue, is it has been one thing that is the be-all and end-all. It simply is not, has not been the case. In combination with washing your hands and covering your coughs and sneezes and public masking and uh, safe physical distancing and the vaccine and other uh, air purification and inside settings like in the classrooms or what have you, nothing has worked as a standalone. Uh, and I've never said any different. They've all worked in conjunction. The best way to reduce transmission is for all public health measures to be in play, not just for one or two, not just for cherry picking based on political appetite. I, I totally agree with you. And, and also uh, even the early treatments, uh, I think they, um, there was, it, it could have been all, all those uh, unfortunate uh, deaths, a, a lot of them could have been prevented if actually, uh, like ivermectin and, uh, and, you know, those uh, cheap drugs that were safe and actually, in, if, if they were applied in the beginning, they, they would work rather than waiting the the, the, the policy was uh, you know quite quite wrong of uh, well no one said they no one said anyone could not take it uh, but you know people talk about on one side it's the long term long time clinical trials for vaccine safety efficacy and otherwise but the, people don't apply the same logic, logic to the effectiveness, the safety of using one drug or another, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, or anything else, because there's not a long-term body of research that says either one of them work. So, you know, we kind of trip ourselves up sometimes inside this conversation, mostly because it's been so hard. It's been so hard on society. It's been so hard on us individually. It's been hard on the economy that, you know— Sometimes the confirmation bias really rears its head on this one. And that's where I struggle. And I try to be very tempered on these conversations because it's not up to me what you do. And so, you know, what I see out there is if someone sees something, whether it's been verified, actually peer-reviewed or otherwise, if it, is, if it jibes with their own thoughts, then that's it. That's the end of the story. When that was never the story prior to this. I think the, society, the social uh, scientists, they had it figured out. You know, whether it be epidemiologists or others that chimed in and we followed their guide, the social scientists told us what was going to happen here. We were going to be at odds because confirmation bias would rule the day. And it's proven to be true. It's been a full-time job for me not to fall prey to it because that's no good for me. It's no good for the show. It would damage me beyond repair. So I've tried to be calm and collected and tempered and reasonable on this stuff. And I'm glad we're having another reasonable conversation on a very contentious issue. And I'll give you the final word, Jerry, and I won't interrupt while you wrap up your thoughts. Yeah, I just, uh, I hear you, Patty, and I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, all your efforts. That's, uh, I, I, I totally agree that that's the way, uh, and, and I totally appreciate, uh, you know, you giving opportunity to everyone to express their their point of view and, and their opinions. And, uh, yeah, keep keep doing the, keep doing the work, and, uh, you know, uh, we pray that, uh, we're actually in the tail, uh, the, the tail of, of this uh, this pandemic because, it, as you said, it's been very hard on everyone and hard on the economy. So, uh, yeah, uh, thank God that uh, we we were. It seems like 
we're getting through it finally. That's one thing, so, regardless of people's stance on how it happened, where it came from, laboratory, purposefully, from a meat market for vaccines all the way through, I think we all share that one thought, is that hopefully this is the home stretch. Hopefully we're in yes. some endemic stage. I don't know how to properly approach pandemic versus endemic and exactly where we are. I don't think anyone really knows, but let's hope that we're very near to that light at the proverbial end of the tunnel. And I appreciate your time, Jerry. Thank you very much, Paddy. Take care. All the best to you. You too, Take sir. Bye-bye. All right, Bye-bye. let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, Gary Salir wants to respond to Christine. That's Christine Tremblett. Not only is the poor woman dealing with a cancer diagnosis, but her son has a very serious addition to crack cocaine. He's looking for help. Gary wants to talk about that right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number three. Gary, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing, Patty? Doing okay, Gary. How you doing? Not bad, not bad. I'm calling in to the lady who called about her son. Yeah. He's got a crack addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a recovering addict. I was a cocaine addict for a little over 20 years. Uh, I'm clean now, going on six years, November 17th. Uh, I just want to say, man, if he can hold out those four weeks to go to Cornerbrook, if he's going to Cornerbrook, I never caught the whole story. I only caught the tail end of it. Is well, it I'll, I'll fill you in a little bit here. So the issue was... He has a severe addiction to where he, uh, his doctor, and his mother don't think that the three weeks available here locally is good enough. So the mother met with government officials to see if they can get financial assistance to send him to Ontario. I think it's called Brentwood, where he has been accepted. There was a bed for him. The financial assistance did not come to bear, and that's where they are. Okay, okay. Yep. Now, I went to Homerwood. I, uh, at the end of it, I... Uh, I surpassed doing cocaine, started doing meth, and uh, all I can say is if he can go there for three weeks, it's going to make a world of difference. It will. And they, when we got in there, we had a bit of time. They told us when when you get if you if he can get any clean time whatsoever, supposing it's a day, they say play the tape and go back in your head to the first time you used, to where you ended up, because next time you're going to end up somewhere worse. You might not live to go to rehab. You could be in jail. You could be dead. I know it's it's a son of a gun to get the fight. Believe me, it took me 22 years. And you know, Gary, I, I suppose that was the thought behind my asking. Even if the, you're unable to get to Brentwood on government funding at this moment in time, is he considering, even though there's a wait time like four, five, six weeks to get into a provincial treatment program, is he considering doing exactly that? Because that could be the first step forward to not only kicking the addiction, but I believe, if I remember correctly, the province also said that he's got to go through a provincial program before they're going to consider sending him up to Ontario. So there's no downside. Now, now it's not up to me to tell Christine or her son what to do, but there doesn't sound like there's a downside to trying to get into a provincial program. It could help, and then it could open the door to for the government to pay for you to go to Ontario. So it sounds like a win-win. And, of course, when we're talking about that kind of stuff, it's not really up to me. It's not really my position or my place to tell Christine what to do, but I think that's a reasonable thought. Uh, I'm telling, uh, this is from experience. I've been there. The people out there are amazing. I've broke down many times. Like a child of about two now. You take your time. Take your, uh, catch your breath. So, you know, it's a one step at a time. People who are in recovery, you know, they'll still announce themselves as an addict or an alcoholic or whatever the case may be. You know, so when we talk about 12-step and, you know, just starting the, starting the process of wanting and getting help, and then it's the ongoing need for uh, additional support, whether it be a sponsor on a 12-step program or otherwise, counseling, whatever the case may be. What do you lean on, Gary, to stay clean? Uh, my family. I, didn't, I went to a couple of meetings, but 
I, I don't know. You, it's great. It was great when I was in rehab because it was all people that were there that were somewhat, you know, they were sober, whether they wanted to or not. They were sober, and it was honest. And I found sometimes some of the meetings I went to were there were people who were actually using, you know what I mean? They were high while they were there. And I don't know, it just takes, to me, it takes away. Now, those people might need to be there. God love them for going, even if they are using. But for me, I just relied on my my fiancé, my kids, uh, my mother especially, and my sister. The, my fiancé, sister, and mother were the three gears that got everything in motion. I mean, without those types of supports, I'm not going to say impossible, but it makes it that much more difficult it, to it, stay it, on it, the straight. It, it's almost impossible sure. without some type of support. That makes sense to me. I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in the churches. I believe in God. I don't believe in the churches. And that's that's been a help to praying. Well, wherever people get this, the the comfort and the solace, it works for me. If it's turning to art or music or religion or your family or biking or uh, running or swimming or you know doodling I, like who cares if it's somewhere where it's helpful to you as an individual that's exactly where you belong so i'm long been encouraged to shame the overlap of uh, spirituality with religion with psych- psychiatric services when i refuse to do it because it makes no sense to me if you get help in one area of life or another good for you Yes, and it, it's the only piece of advice I get uh, give is hang in there, and uh, it can be done, man. Your worst day sober is not so half as bad as your best day high. Had a boy, Gary. What do you do to keep yourself occupied, like physical activity or music or art? Or what do you do? What do you lean on? I got a, a, a dog who's either less than a year old. I got a three-year-old and an eleven-year-old. So terrific and work. <laughs> That's. Uh, that's a handful, uh, speaking from experience. Uh, good to have you on the show, Gary. Uh, keep it up, stay positive, and stay in touch. Thank you. You do a great show, man. Thanks, buddy. All the best. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Here you go, 17 years. That's what I like to hear. Let's take a break. Uh, Mayor Steve Ryan on St. Mary's is in the queue. I mean, there was an investigation done into the affluent come from that old fish sauce plant with vats inside of capelin and pineapple juice. The stink is one thing, but the lethal affluent, quite another. Mayor Steve Ryan after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to his worship, the mayor of St. Mary's. That's Mayor Steve Ryan. Mayor Ryan, you're on the air. Hello, Petty. How are you this morning? That's kind. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, pardon me, Mayor Steve Ryan. <laughs> no, Steve is good. Okay. Uh, Thanks for your time. Uh, like I said, Petty, I said earlier this morning, it uh, seems like the only people we have in our corner is the media, our local MHA, and our MP are in our corner, yes. But the government, government is after abandoning us. Abandoning us on both levels. Both levels. This story is frustrating, I will say, and I don't even live in the community, but, you know, between Environment Canada, the Department of Environment here, DFO and others, they understood a bunch of things based on the investigation which began, I believe, in late 2016 as to exactly what that affluent is coming out of that old abandoned fish sauce plant. Take us back to 16 and what led to the initial investigation. Uh, back to 16, we we had the plant there's 150 tanks in the list, uh, 12,500 liters in every tank. Uh, as a gentleman came forward, he wanted some of the tanks. So at the time, the town, uh, we, we uh, made a motion and we uh, uh, wiped it off the slate. The building was nothing else to do with us because we didn't want to stand in his way. 
and he came in. And at that time, he had he had communication with with uh, municipal levels of environment, and they had an attack plan. Now he never properly had, uh, done the attack plan, what he was supposed to do, and how he was supposed to clean it up. Uh, but it was nobody monitored him either, and he was just flushing into the ocean. They came in, and he got a report. They came in, and he shut him down at the time. Uh, I think it was on the 9th, 8th of November. On the 9th, they came and they met a man pour a bag of cement into, into the drain. That was their solution at the time. And on the 10th of uh, November, the report came back telling how toxic the product was. They, they tested our fish to kill every fish within 15 minutes. And the environmental uh, level this time, their reply was, we, we know what we we're supposed to do. They tested on the fish, uh, kill the fish. So they solved the problem by getting a $20 bag of cement put into the drain. People is not discussed at all. Uh, and from there, we, we're after getting the, the councils involved all along trying to get it cleaned up at different levels of government. But uh, I, I don't know where, where this all goes. At that time, the, the provincial government was notified for the federal of the results. At that time, our MHA, Ms. Sherry Gamble-Walsh was uh, a minister. Uh, the minister of the environment at the time was Mr. Eddie Joyce. They all sat to a table. You think it would have been very important to turn to his colleague and say, we have a, we have a big issue down in your area. Do you, do you know much about that? I, I don't know much about what goes on behind closed doors with the politics, but I, I, I think this is a very important issue. And When do the ministers get involved? Uh, it seems like they're... The people underneath them are not doing what they're doing. And Patty, in 2000, and uh, four years ago, when this story hit, it was the top story in North America for two days. When it was at that time, we went out looking. And at that time, we had both levels of government sitting on those results and still never told us. Still never told us. It's just not, uh, like I was asked this morning, am I mad? Or, I'm always on mad. I'm upset. Uh, Teddy, I found out last Friday about this. I was handed a paper by, uh, by a journalist. And since last Friday, I'm sitting on this now five or six days. I'm after losing sleep. I'm after losing sleep. They're sitting on it seven years. They didn't think it was uh, important to, to tell the people, the MHA, the MP. Uh, I, I don't get us. I don't get us. I'm not so sure I do either. I mean, to hear a government department say, well, look, our only job is to uh, investigate the death of fish. Our job is done. We put a cap on the pipe. That sounds like going halfway to me, uh, or not even halfway. So what do you think would the information would have led to? Because from where I sit, if you're given some information about not only the impact, the toxic lethality of the affluent on fish, not only the, the rancid stink that comes from that facility, the abandoned facility, it might have led to some uh, cooperation between the municipalities, some areas, the province and the federal government to actually tear it down versus the eyesore and the stink that it is some 17, 18 years later. What would you have done with the info had you got it in 2016 or 2017? Oh, it would it would have been acted on from what I was told uh, uh, in September of uh, uh, the past year, uh, September the 15th, we had our MP in here, Mr. Ken McDonald, and we'd done a tour outside the building. And at that time, we had a discussion. He said, if you could prove that that's, that's anyway uh, toxic, he said, this site has to be cleaned up. Here, that man at that time was talking to me, and they were sitting with this on paper. No one was there. So we, we took it on ourselves to start to be a company back and forth the past few years. Just, uh, we're trying to get pricing done on, on the cleanup. 
So we reached out to them again, told them, can you prove this is toxic? They came in. This story is outside of what they already have in information. And they found a H2S gas inside the building. They actually went inside the building and they suited up and they found a H2S gas. H2S gas is a very, very deadly gas. If it's the leak out, uh, it's explosive. Now, uh, we're after over numerous times after hearing tell us people said, we'll burn that. We've got a foggy night, we're going to burn that building. If arson was to be used now and somebody sets fire to that building, you're setting fire to a bomb. A bomb. Not just for some areas. Not just for scenarios. If the wind is prevailing, it could be for the town of St. John's. Like we, we, we still got 110 tanks in there. Now we have H2S gas. The, the problem that the federal uh, fisheries thought they fixed at the top of the bag of cement, the liquid is still leaking. And we have a door in the front and the side of the building. The ocean now with high tide hits the building. The ocean with high tide goes into the door, comes back out, washes out the material. Uh, like... Where do, where do we stand? When did the minister, I'm calling the minister Bernie Davis now, to get personally involved in this, reach out to, the, to his counterparts in Ottawa, and, and let's get this fixed and get it out of the community. There's a panic here now in the community after this broke this morning. A panic, running community of 309 people, small town. Our biggest issue here is make sure everybody has drinking water. We don't have money to go 90-10 on a cleanup of, of a, a SARS plant that was originally put there by federal uh, co-op money. Uh, and right now, as a town, we had a meeting last night, an emergency meeting with our, with our council. We're accepting nothing but a total cleanup, a total, total cleanup of that beach, put it back to where it should be, uh, and give us, give us back uh, some peace of mind here in our town. And, you know, had this information been disclosed immediately, there would have been a vastly different reaction than getting it seven years later because then it's that pent-up fear of, oh, my God, what have I done to myself, my family, my loved ones uh, in St. Mary's because we didn't do anything about that plan for us to put a cap on a bloody pipe. Amazing stuff. Uh, anything else this morning, Mayor Ryan, before I sneak off yeah, to the news? Look, look, definitely, like I said, I sent you some pictures. The water right now is washing underneath the building and she's ready to topple off down into the ocean. So if they don't see that as a major issue, if they want to stick with the fish, the fish issue, uh, is ready to topple off there now, ready to the ocean, and we'll have a foot of waste that is building up in on the floor where they put the cement into the drain, running right into our ocean. I'd I, I like to know what, uh, what they think an emergency is going to be. If it's an oil spill, the more on the grand banks, everything in their arsenal is put to clean up that, that spill. I want everything to put in both levels of governor's arsenal to clean up our domestic that we have here right now. and give the, Not the people of just a town of, of this province. Uh, know that the government do have your back when something do really happen. They finally got the fish plant cleared up in, in Admiral's Beach, didn't they, Steve? They got it cleared up about a month ago, Penny, yeah. and it was only a fraction of the cost what we're locked out to get it done, put back to the original state. And, Penny, when I stress this, we're talking about money. Uh, and I was asked earlier in the interview, what do you, what do you see? A total cleanup of what we have on the beach. And uh, we have a company that's ready to, to go in full full guns blazing within 48 hours after the original cleanup back out in the billy. That's just a product and the, and the tanks. And I'm estimating somewhere around about $1.5 million for a total cleanup. So we're setting on this, this for the sake of $1.5 million. 
I appreciate the time, Mayor Ryan. Stay in touch. Let me know if anything changes. I will definitely give you an update. Take your penny for your time, but it's very important to us. Pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Have You're a welcome. Bye-bye. It's Mayor Steve Ryan, the mayor of the town of St. Mary's. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Agnes is there. She wants to talk about the Cancer Care Center out in the city of Cornerbrook. And Todd, snow days. Let's take a break. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Agnes, you're on the air. Good day, and how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. I'm hanging her tough, Patty, still. Still battling. Obviously, I'm still winning because I'm still on this side. side. Yes, ma'am. Anyway, I have two things I want to run by you. One is when I did the support group, one of the members branched off and she started her own group. Her name is Joan. She started Breast Friends. So the 26th of January, she has a function going ahead. So if anyone is interested, in fact, if anyone is out there diagnosed with breast cancer, they can certainly give Joan a call. And her number is 785 785-7465? 785-7465. So if anyone is out there interested in attending this function that she's having on the 26th, they can certainly call Joan. Okay. Or like I say, if they're not interested in attending and they're diagnosed with breast cancer and would be interested in talking to anybody, they can certainly call Joan. Sounds good. So that's next Thursday, the 26th of January, and Joan's yes. number is 785-7465. That's right. Okay. And thank you for that. No problem. And I wish Joan every success in her endeavors. So anyway, the next thing is a few years back, they closed the cancer office on the West Coast, and we organized the function. A crowd of us got together, and we fought, and we got it opened again. And then, of course, along with everything else, it closed down for COVID. Apparently, it's closed, and it's not going to reopen. And I got this right from the horse's mouth. It's not a rumor. It's a fact. So if the people on the West Coast do not get together and do not fight to get this open again. I mean, we all know that the Cancer Society is taking in enough money to pay a one-person staff that they put in that office. So it's important. I mean, it's very important that that, that it's, it's open. And, I mean, the people on the, on the West Coast are just as important as people anywhere else. Uh, of course. So uh, this is a question based out of ignorance. I don't know the answer. What exactly was offered at the Cornwall Cancer Center? Well, uh, of course, you could go there and talk to that person. Um, she could give you directions um, if you were seeking certain advice. So she was a patient navigator. Definitely. Okay. And plus, plus, uh, of course, they had a navigator, a uh, different system working at the hospital also. But, but uh, for prosthesis and wigs and different, even if you wanted to meet there and have a discussion with uh, two or three people or five or six or eight people wanted to meet there in the office, you could. Okay. Yeah, I was just, I was just curious it, exactly it's, what it's was important. Like, I mean... Uh, for for myself, like I, I like 
this is a passion for me. I've, I mean, I've, I've volunteered at the support group for 25 years, but it's a passion because even now, like the group has been going ahead since COVID, but every now and then I will get a call from someone and they'll say, I tried to get out to somebody and they gave me your number. The cancer office, gave, the cancer people in St. John's obviously gave them that person my phone number. It, it's important when you're diet, like the first time you're told you have cancer, automatically the person feels, well, I've been given a death sentence. Right. And it, it's important that you realize that, yes. People die with cancer, but many, many people live with cancer, too. It's very important. Uh, it's a, certainly an important and sometimes left out uh, message because the diagnosis just scares the pants off you. And some people just give in to the thought that, well, this is the end of the road when it needn't be necessarily. Now, there's different well, forms of severity and lethality of 15, different cancers, but 15 sure. 15 times for me now, Patty, Wow, I've been told. And presently, I have leukemia and malignant melanoma. So, and I mean, I've had many, believe me, 15 times. I have been battling for 50 years. And I'm still here. You are so. <laughs> and I'm about to put five loaves of bread in the Just I made bread just funny. So. So how many bumps in a loaf? You are three bump baker or two bumps? No, three. Yeah, three. best way to go. Sure. Yeah. So, Agnes, I really appreciate the effort you've put into being a support person for folks in your area. Now, Joan is picking up the picking up where I guess where you left off, but it is amazing she to has me. Has been for for a nice while. Not not necessarily no, because in the group that I did, my, my group was for I say my group, but our group was for, for all kinds of cancer, and Joan was a member of that group, and rightly so. She saw the need to set up a group for breast cancer. So she did, of course, she came to me and she said, but she had planned. And I wished her all the luck in the world and told her if there's anything I could do to help her, by all means. And, but in, in the group that I did also, I had 10 or 12 people that were breast cancer, but that was fine too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's important that. Someone that's newly diagnosed need like they need someone to talk to, someone to reach out, someone that has walked their walk, and it, it's it, it is important. And I, I, it's not only important mentally, but I think that helps you. Definitely, your body releases something that says you can do this, you can do this. Like that guy was just on talking about his drug addiction and everything else. It takes a lot to survive but a lot of people do survive and I firmly believe that attitude is a part of it Uh, I hear that repeatedly and it makes sense to me Agnes, I'm really pleased to be able to speak with you again today. And for those of you interested, as breast, uh, those who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and or family members, I assume, Joan is hold, uh, holding an event next Thursday, the 26th of January. Her number is 785-7465. Where and when? Do you happen to know? Uh, well, I think, uh, actually, I will be attending, too. It's... it's um it's, I think she's, we're, we're going to meet and have a lunch at Jennifer's. Okay. But it will be good. And she's going to have a speaker. It's, it, 
I'm sure it will be interesting. It always is. When a group of people can get together, whether it's AA, Al-Anon, or, you know, Humberwood or whatever, when a group of people can get together and discuss and help each help someone else, it helps that person. And it's, it's a good thing that this is going ahead. That it is. Stay in Ready touch. Thank you, Agnes. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Todd, you stay right there. You want to talk about snow days and maybe it's the impact on business? Is that what's coming up? Okay. And then uh, Celestine, am I pronouncing that properly, Dave? Celestine. Oh, actually, well, I've spoken to Celestine before in the past. She wants to talk about mental health services. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's do it. Line number five. Morning, Todd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well, Chef. How are you doing? Oh, hanging in there, boy. Good. Um, just wanted to, uh, quickly uh, wanted to, uh, before I talk about snow days, just quickly wanted to uh, throw two cents at uh, the issue of the battery. Um, the, you know, I think that this is exactly the type of thing that we have a municipal government for and appreciating that there's bureaucracy and there's, you know, uh, municipality acts and all that type of thing at play and uh, the machinations that go through all that. Um, you know, when there's a nuisance, there's being a nuisance for a nuisance sake. Uh, and the residents are, you know, basically, they're, they're, what do they do? But, you know, uh, start some type of court proceeding or something, which will get them nowhere. This is exactly what an individual, individual like this probably wants. The city really has a responsibility to uh, be more involved in this than they are. I think the, the, the throwing their hands in there saying they can't do much is, is disappointing and is unfortunate. I really feel for the, the folks out in the battery because there's a tough situation going on out there. I look, I don't even know exactly how they can say that like when i read section 377 uh it seems fairly clear to me plus i think there's examples in the past where council did jump in and do what they thought was right whether it be for public safety or public nuisance you know the example of the the christmas tree in the roundabout and i think the best one the most analogous in my opinion is the personal fireworks they very quickly told us what we could and could not do and that was all in the effort to uh increase public safety and public's peacefulness so I'm not really sure why they're so loath to get involved here. And then on top of it, you've got the MHA for the area, John Abbott, who's the cabinet minister, who says he spoke with Minister Howell at Municipal Affairs that they would work expeditiously to get any amendments passed so that we can, you know, avoid what has been the obvious outcome here. It was that one set of glowing nuisance security lights, and then all of a sudden when the decisions made at council that they weren't going to do anything, he put up another set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder why. Anyway. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough one, and, and you know, this goes on all over the city. Obviously, not as extreme or, or as visible, probably, as this one is, but, uh, you know, every neighborhood, every neighbor probably has a story about something. But, you know, as you said, the city gets involved in many, many things and tells you what we can and what we can't do. I mean, last summer, uh, you know, for six weeks, we couldn't light our barbecues in our backyard. Uh, you know, and, and people accept that there's reasons why, rules and regulations but uh, but again a nuisance for a nuisance sake is really uh, uh, you know unfortunate and, and I really hope that the city uh, kind of steps up and, and gets more involved in their acting like they're going to um, that being said moving on quickly I okay. uh, just wanted to call in with uh, where my hat uh, from my, my H&L uh, food and beverage representative as well as my own uh, you know, personal involvement in the restaurant industry. Just to, uh, you know, with the weather coming this weekend, looks like we're going to get another shot of snow, a bit of winter weather over the weekend, Saturday snowstorm, uh, call or whatever. Um, I just encourage people to, uh, you know, uh, obviously I don't want people to do anything that's unsafe or whatnot, but I think that people should understand the importance of, of Friday, Saturday in the winter to food and beverage and bars and restaurants uh, anywhere, but particularly here in St. John's. 
losing a Saturday to a snowstorm is a crippling, crippling economic blow. Uh, and sometimes, you know, um, you know, appreciating that the weather gets nasty and it's not great getting around. But, but sometimes, you know, it's not so dangerous that people can't get out and about. So I guess I'd ask people to, you know, if you've got plans and you've had plans to go out, don't, uh, you know, write them off based on a forecast. Don't write them off based on the first few flakes. Like if it gets too miserable, you can't get your car to drive where you don't feel safe, cool. Obviously, don't go out. But uh, what we see this time of year, when you see forecasts like this, our reservations start dropping like flies as soon as people start talking snow. And, and you know, not being able to maximize a Friday and Saturday in the winter is a challenge anytime. But after the last few years, um, you know, the importance of the next 12 Fridays and Saturdays to the, the market in St. John's, to the food and beverage and the restaurants and the bars in St. John's, it really can't be overstated. So I, I just want to put that plug in there to people to, you know, Put your coolie talks on, put your put your, your wits and your hats on and, and, and get out there and, and support locals best you can. I, I hear from people in your industry all the time about the importance of Friday, Saturday in particular. And, you know, there's a lot of restaurants that I would think are a couple of lost Saturdays away from shutting her down. Because I mean, we all know the stories and the input costs and what have you. So, fair enough. I mean, if it's safe to do so, I've got some plans for Saturday. Uh, at this moment in time, I haven't seen anything that's going to keep me in the house, so we'll just proceed as if I pretend I'm normal. Uh, Todd, very very quickly, and I know this is a you know a, a business plug, but I'm do it anyway, just because I I'm curious as to the upcoming announcement that Water West Meat and Three. What's Three got to do with anything? Uh, so Meat and Three is a, is a kind of a traditional Southern U.S. style of food service. So basically, oh. it's almost like cafeteria style. So. It's essentially like a set menu. So you come in and you order, I'll have the meat, and I'll have one, two, or three sides. So there's a selection of sides. Oh. There's a selection of meats. So you come in and say, for example, I'll have the meatloaf, the collard greens, the macaroni, cheese, and the cornbread. And it's essentially that idea. So uh, anybody who doesn't, who's interested in it, if you look it up online, meat three, like I said, southern U.S., it's very common all over, you know, that, that kind of uh, southeastern United States, you know, Georgia, Tennessee, uh, those places, you know, you see them all over. They're, they're normally mom-and-pop kind of small restaurant. They're, they're a version of, of a, a Newfoundland rural takeout, you know, oh. style. but obviously they do a different style of food. So that's what we're trying by. We're, we're bobbing and weaving, trying to come up with things to keep people interested, trying to come up with things that we can, you know, use in different ways. So there's another effort to uh, to reimagine uh, what selling food in the, in the post-COVID or a COVID era is all about because the, the landscape for restaurants, food, and beverage has changed dramatically and continues to change on a daily, weekly basis. And morale just hustling, trying to figure out what it's all going to look like, uh, you know, in the weeks, months, and years going ahead. Good luck with it, Todd. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye bye. Cheers. Yeah, the Friday, Saturdays, it's haymaking time, right? It really is. Now, as Todd said, and no one's encouraging anyone to do anything unsafe. It's just maybe we'll see what the weather brings before we. <laughs> Cancel our res. I guess that's the message. Let's go to line number one. Celestine, you're on the air. Hi, Paddy. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, good. Yeah, I just want to talk about my, my, my situation with the mental health care system. That When I was diagnosed when I was 21, uh, I was diagnosed as a chronic paranoid schizophrenic when I was 21. Okay. And that's a rather serious illness to be ha- handled when you're 21. And I didn't know much about it at the time. I mean, I didn't even know what schizophrenia was at the time. I didn't know what the word meant. And uh, I soon discovered after I, you know, see a doctor what what it was and that, but, you know, uh, what I was going to do about it and that I really didn't know. And 
the only person I could see was my family doctor, and he would send me to St. John's to see a psychiatrist, and then psychiatrist would write me a prescription and send me home again, you know. And that went on for months until, you know, I saw, you know, I can't keep going on like this. I, you know, i got to work. I, I'm sick. Uh, you know, it's making me physically sick, the medication and uh, all this stuff. And, uh, I, I, you know, I've I done the best I could with it, but my biggest problem was I had to give up drinking. Uh, that was really hard for me when I was young. Uh, you know, I used to drink with the boys, and uh, I had to give that up because it did mix with my medication and made me sick physically. And uh, so the first thing I'd almost give up drinking, and about... Uh, Three years after that, I gave up the draws, which my psychiatrist forced me to. She said, you know, if you don't give it up, she said, I'm going to commit you, right? And I said, well, <laughs> I better give it up, right? Because <laughs> I was in no shape to look after myself or anything. And, you know, I was living with my parents, and, uh, you know, and they they didn't they didn't want me doing this stuff, right? So I, I gave that up, and I got on a good medication with no side effects, and I got better, uh, you know, and... I lived a fairly normal life. I've worked all my life. I'm 54 now. Uh, I've worked all my life. I got four kids and a wife. Uh, I supported them all my life, and uh, you know uh, now I got cancer. I'm fighting cancer now at this age, my stage of my life, and uh, I've been through the healthcare system, like I said, uh, up and down. But uh, you know I know what it's all about when people are you know trying to get help and that, but. You know, like I said before, you you're not going to get help. You got to help yourself. And that's true of it. Sure. You know, it's one thing to be told what you need to give up. In this case, you know, off the drinks and off the draws, as you put it. So, yeah. the ongoing type of supports you get, you know, long term access to mental health supports. What does that look like? What what kind of help are you receiving on an ongoing basis? Right now, I see the fact team in Marystown and my psychiatrist here in Bjorn. Okay. Yeah. And they handle all my all my problems. Like I talk to the nurses down there, and they communicate with my psychiatrist, and he knows what's going on with me, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis. And uh, my medication works fine, and sometimes I get a bit sick, and you know, I never change my medication because it's what works for me. But uh, that's that's basically the help I get. I don't have to go to St. John's. I don't have to be admitted to hospital. I've been admitted to hospital before in Fort McMurray and in uh, in, in St. John's. Uh, my experience was good. The first time I was admitted, I mean, I was scared to death. I didn't know where I was, too. I thought they were hiding me, you know. I was frightened to death, right? I thought somebody was after me and this stuff, and uh, I thought they were hiding me in the hospital, you know, to keep me safe. And, you know, I was scared to death. When I first saw the physician there, I thought he had something in his back. I thought he was going to kill me, and I couldn't move because they had me out of up on drugs. I mean, I didn't know he was going to haul out of his pocket. I had to ask him. <laughs> so it was kind of comical in a way, but it's kind of serious too, you know. Yeah, it sounds scary as much as it does comical. Uh, Celestine, so uh, just make sure I'm on the right track here. You say your diagnosis is paranoid schizophrenia? Yes, chronic, yeah. So when people hear that, the unfortunate reality is some people think that automatically makes somebody dangerous. When that's just not the case, there's so much misunderstanding oh. out there about what it means to be diagnosed with one mental illness or another. But when they hear the word schizophrenia, even if you add chronic paranoid schizophrenia, they think a certain thing. What do you want people to know about your illness? Well, it can be dangerous if you're not treated. It can be dangerous because you're hearing voices all the time, constantly hearing voices, and they're taunting you and tormenting you and telling you, you know, 
to, you know, do things and testing you and every your fate, testing your love for people, testing everything you can imagine, you know, because not a time you have is your own at the time, right? I mean, I was a year and a half before the first, first time I got, I had a little break. I was a year and a half being sick, constantly hearing voices, and uh, I went to confession. You know, I turned to church because I didn't know where else to turn, and uh, went to confession and uh, when I came out of confession and uh, I started praying the voices stopped for about a minute and that was the first break I got in about a year and a half and that was quite a blessing I tell you that and uh, I never forgot it and uh, I kept praying to God after that to because uh, I knew he could heal me I had the faith that he could heal me and uh, I kept going to church and one day I was in church in Marystown and uh, I was kneeling down praying and uh, just, you know, just begging God to heal me, and uh, this big weight came over me, and I was already kneeling. It just planted me on the floor, and it was really heavy, and I knew something was there, and I was scared, right? And when it left, my mind was clear, right? I was perfectly fine, you know, so there is there is a lot of lot of, uh, lot of help in different ways, but uh, medication, like I still take my medication regularly, and that I would never give up my medication or nothing like that. And you know, are you able you know, to work outside? Yes, I've worked on my life. Yeah, I've worked a number of jobs. I hydrovacked in Fort McMurray. I cut down the fish plant for 22 years. I worked as a janitor. I worked in restaurants. I, you know, I worked at home care for the last six or seven years. Okay. You know, I worked on my life. That was one thing I made. I made sure that I don't was. I was able to work. I didn't care how sick I was, as long as I could work. I was normal as far as I'm concerned, right? I was the same as everybody else. If I could work, I was good, just as good as anybody else as far as I was concerned. 100%. Uh, I'm glad you called the show this morning. I wish you uh, well. Stay in touch with us. Will you sell us time? Yes, I will, yeah. Okay, all the best. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we are going to take a newscast here. Dave, how are we doing out there? A few calls to get us through. Today might be a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Well, yesterday there was a couple of calls regarding the future of Muskrat. One was with uh, PC leadership hopeful Tony Wakeham, of course, the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. Then there's all the talk about what might not be uh, held in public. But what is absolutely going on is things regarding the relationship with Quebec. A couple of things. So there's a committee struck to look at what the implications are of 2041 when the contract comes up at the Upper Churchill. And then there's an interesting article well, that add to it the Atlantic Loop and add to it the fact that Hydro-Quebec seems to be working a bit more actively on this file than we might be. Now... I would imagine there's lots we don't know about the types of conversations, the level of people who are in the level of conversations, uh, whether that be at the prime ministerial, pardon me, the premier's level or various ministers regarding natural resources. But there's an article in the Globe and Mail today about Premier Legault in the province of Quebec. What it says is gearing up for uh, negotiations with Newfoundland and Labrador. Again, the article is a little bit misleading with the headline, the lead and the sub because it's a little bit more of Legault looking back than it is plans for the future, but they are looking at it aggressively and actively. And what that means for us, whether it be with Muskrat, 
whether it be with transmission of power via Quebec versus what we felt like or some felt like we were forced to do with the relationship with Nova Scotia Power and Omera and the Maritime Island Link. But it'd be nice to know a little bit more from this government exactly where we are. I'm anxiously awaiting the report and recommendations or a clearer understanding of what 2041 means when that committee brings forward their eventual report because a lot of people in the province really think that it's the panacea. It is the be-all and end-all. Our woes are over when 2041 comes and goes. Not entirely sure that that's the case. I don't know all the moving parts or the ins and outs, but people that I think do know, they paint a very different picture than what I hear in general conversation, but that report is going to be fascinating because we're going to have to incorporate that right away into what 2041 eventually brings. We can look, pretend that 2041 is such a long way away, we've got some more immediate concerns, but if we don't get out in front of it and plot our strategy very carefully, and of course, negotiating with Hydro Quebec has been a fool's errand in some front, but the fact of the matter is we've got shared issues with the province of Quebec, whether it be the Labrador Trough of Minerals, whether it be with uh, projects on the Churchill River, and if this whole marketing plan of the Atlantic Loop ever comes to pass, we're going to have to not put both feet under the cover covers with Hydro-Quebec, but probably one. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Barry, you're on the air. Hello, Penny. Hi there. Yes, uh, I spoke to you last week about uh, tractor registration. Okay, yes, I remember it. And uh, I don't know if you got the email that I had sent. Was it one this morning about a, a different type of vehicle being registered? And in short, yeah, uh, it's a small tractor. It's it's a uh, now there was one sent in on the twenty first November. Uh, I sent, well, I didn't do it because I don't have a computer, but okay. I went to my MHA's office. Uh, a copy of uh, the one that I had sent to uh, the finance minister, the premier, the opposition leaders, uh, and I sent a copy to you. Okay, do you know who would have sent it to me? Because I can search it out it that way. Came from, it came from Craig Parity's office. Okay, now that does not ring a bell in my inbox, but... Oh, okay, okay, maybe you, didn't, maybe you didn't get it or didn't see it. And, yeah. uh, oh, I here it is. Replies. It's I from his replies. office. It's from a lady named Jane Ivany. She's the constituent yeah, assistant. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay, got it. Okay, and there was two, uh, two replies. I got one from the finance minister and one from the government services minister. And uh, she faxed that into you or emailed that to you, too, the replies, so you can get an idea of what, <laughs> what i got to deal with. Yeah, I've got the, I just opened the one from uh, Minister Cody. And when I came back to work on Wednesday, I had four or five days' worth of emails, so I'm still trying to sift through them. Yeah, but I, I do have uh, Minister Cody's uh, response here. Yep. I know. But uh, just to explain a little bit further. Okay. See, this $230 fee... Uh, is not about revenue for the government. I spoke to a salesman in a in the dealership, a tractor dealership, and I said I asked a question. I said, "How many of those tractors do you put a license plate on when you sell?" He said, "Less than five percent." So, I don't see the reason why they need to charge a fee like they. Maybe if they had a reasonable fee, they could even get more money. Yeah, I'm giving this a skim while we're talking, and there's all kinds of mentions of 
cost of living supports, an increased income supplement, and yes, not I, really answering your question. The reason why the reason why I I put that in there to make the comparison to what they're to what they're doing for people with hundred thousand dollars or hundred and fifty thousand dollars compared to what they can do for someone like me who's trying to survive. That's the reason that was there to make a comparison. Okay. Yeah, because they included it all in their response to you. That's how they, that's how she answered. Really, that's it. Yeah, she didn't she didn't uh, didn't answer anything about the the registration fees. And if I remember correctly, you've got a twenty nine horsepower. No, twenty point nine. Twenty point nine. Pardon me, I misremembered. Yeah. Uh, but you go on to say that about ten percent of your operations takes place on public property versus ninety percent on your own personal property. Well, probably less than ten percent. Okay, well, I think you used ten last time, but whatever the number is. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's limited. The use that I gave it last year, a few times up the road, the farthest I got to go is on a thirty kilometer road. The farthest I got to go is. About a quarter of a kilometer, or a half a kilometer. I, I, I don't have to go anywhere further than half a kilometer from my driveway. And with registration fees and the insurance, the insurance is $184, and the, and the registration fee is 230 It It worked out to uh, over $40 a kilometer to operate my machine on the road. It's pretty dear. It's ridiculous. One one of the the people that I spoke to in in the in the government office, she said, "Well, she said that's awful." I said, "Yes, it's awful, but I can't get anyone to do anything about it." Yeah, I mean, I don't know where this lands because they don't break it down to any sort of amount of time or distance traveled. They simply say. If it's operated on public roadways, you are going to be charged this annual fee. You know, they don't make any, they don't break it out to quarter kilometer, half kilometer. As if you oh, put, no, the, I, put the tires on the public roads, the fee is charged. I know, I know that. But with, uh, with regards to, if you read the one from uh, the government service minister about the impact on the provincial infrastructure, yeah. uh, how ridiculous is that? Yeah, it says the higher cost of registration for a tractor is reflective of the greater impact on infrastructure of operating a heavier vehicle on the roadways, which is not what you're doing. It's not a heavier vehicle. It's, it's, it's about three thousand pounds, <laughs> and, and they don't they, they don't have it divided up in in in, in sizes for vehicles, for tractors. They do for trucks. If you got a one ton truck, you'll pay a fee. If you got a three ton truck, you'll pay more. But those little tractors, they're 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 rating them the same as those big front end loaders that's on the road every day, and that don't make sense to me. I spoke to the registrar, and and uh, she said, well, she said it's an X plate. X plate. What is it about letter X? Is it something that's uh, set in stone that uh, that can't be modified anyway? You know, it don't make it don't make a lot of sense. They're doing it for trucks. Why not do it for every equipment? Or, and include if they want to include those little tractors with every equipment, why don't they do it that way too? It's a fair question. I would have no idea. I guess they would consider it just adding a layer of bureaucracy that's unnecessary, but that's easy enough for them to say because they're not the ones paying the fee. That's right. That's right. No, I haven't got mine registered now. It's, it's expired in September, and, and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not sure either. I mean, uh, I guess I can add this back to my list as to why there's not a further breakdown of tonnage uh, when we talk about these vehicles that all, all of a sudden simply end up under X. Yeah. 
that's, that's exactly. And X is like something that can't be uh, can't be modified. <laughs> X is set in stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Barry. We're Did we're due. Pardon me. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime, Barry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all the best. Bye bye. Yeah, he is right. We do it in different categories. But if your rig requires an X plate, then that's that. All right, uh, let's check in on Twitter. Haven't done much of that today. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Always going to be lots of reaction when there's any conversations about the hot-button, contentious, controversial issues of the day, including the vaccine, and no short supply of that on my timeline here today. Whoa. Uh, email address, openlineofvocm.com. Let's take our final break of the morning. Still another segment left to speak with you live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, sometimes there's the need for some clarification or what have you because people can't hear what they want to hear sometimes. But this was regarding the story that's in the news the last couple of days regarding the most recent research about the health impacts of alcohol consumption. And someone said, why would you bother bringing that up? Well, it's just something that's happening in the news. It might be of interest to some, maybe provoke conversation about what it might look like in next steps. So the recommendations have really changed uh, dramatically. It's gone from safe consumption in and around a couple of drinks a day. Now they're saying a couple of drinks a week and preaching abstinence from, which of course is a difficult achievement for many people. And so the consequence is people will just take on their own risk assessment. Whether or not you think that you're going to change your habits based on most recent research, I have no idea. And it's not the purpose of putting it out there to tell you to do anything. It's just that there's information, and information is not intended to be fearful. It's just it is what it is. Because that was the contention of the emailers, that I'm just making people afraid. You know, fear-mongering. Of course, that's the phrase thrown around quite often these days. No, information is not fear-mongering. It is just exactly that, no more, no less. So people will do as they see fit. And then in conversation with Kevin Cody, the executive director at the Newfoundland Labrador Alliance for the Control of Tobacco, we included some of the issues regarding alcohol in the most recent research about what his industry, you know, folks who are promoting quitting smoking, how the lessons they've learned may be applied to this inevitable conversation in the world of alcohol, and that's regarding warning labels. It took absolute decades. The first mention in the House of Commons was uh, dates all the way back to 1963. The Minister of National Health and Welfare, Julie LaMarche, declared in the House of Commons that smoking causes lung cancer. Then a year later, the United States Surgeon General said the same thing, and then the powers of groups like ACT-NL, they kicked in with their horsepower and their want for more warnings and educational programs regarding the harms associated with tobacco. And it didn't happen overnight. It took decades. It took a ton of money, educational programs, awareness co programs, whether it be in schools or in the general public and pressuring government to remove the ability for, in that case, tobacco companies to be title sponsors of things like uh, an auto race, like Rothman's was in uh, Montreal for years, like Du Maurier was for the National Women's Golf Open. For the longest time, it was the Du Maurier National Women's Championship. So, you know, you're going to see that type of pressure come to bear for people who have heard this research and want to apply more labels, warning labels, to whether it be spirits or wine and of course you know, remember the old adages people have leaned on a glass of red wine a day is promoting health now i'm not going to say that that's actually true or accurate but those are the types of things that float around and that's why we brought it forward this morning to do what as you see fit and to talk about it if you're so inclined the same emailer grave concerns 
with what I said about the instances and the ease with which some university students can cheat. And it's the advancement of artificial intelligence. And this is not something I'm opining based on nothingness or, and or just uh, social media feeds. It's actually examinations that have been conducted at some of the biggest universities in the country, including Western University. Well, my wife and one of my sisters, that's their alma mater. That's neither here nor there. So there's one artificial intelligence technology that has made it so different. It's called ChatGPT. And when you look at the uptake on some of the social media platforms, whether it be the Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, ChatGPT leaves them all in its wake. The numbers of people using that artificial intelligence platform is astounding. So what they're referring to it as is autocorrect on steroids. So simply, you can enter in a subject. The artificial intelligence, that is ChatGPT, will scour the Internet. And in seconds flat, it will spit out lyrics to a song or a poem or computer code and or text, and most importantly for the university setting, essays. So at the University of Western Ontario, they uncovered 430 instances of what they call scholastic offenses, basically plagiarism, that was reported in the 2021-2022 school year. That was double what it was pre-pandemic and the advent of some of these artificial intelligence technology platforms. So it's not to insinuate that every university student is going to choose to cheat because the punishment is really quite clear and quite severe when you're caught plagiarizing. The story also goes on to talk about the new pressures on lecturers and professors to be hyper-attentive to this matter when they hear or pardon me, read phrases that are a little bit out of line or out of touch with what the student would have been doing in the past. And then they're talking about the reinduction of more and more oral exams where you won't be able to click on your chat GPT and come up with a computer-produced uh, essay or text or song or poem. So that's the story. It's not saying everyone in the university is cheating, but the possibilities of it now are much greater than they were in the past. We'd go to the library, take out a text, or go to a study room, and cherry-pick a few phrases that you think would really sound good in your essay. And some people have absolutely been caught and charged with the plagiarism. And, you know, in some cases... Uh, kicked out of school. But that's the topic there is that artificial intelligence, while it would have a lot of upside for humanity, it presents a certain risk on a variety of fronts. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.